Brian, you know what causes the happiest, most warm-hearted feelings in the holiday season? Oh, maybe a warm meal with the family? Well, no, it's when old friends that you haven't seen in a while come back around and you get to see them, and that's what's happening in more ways than one, because an old friend of ours has come back around. Paint your life. The fine folks at paintyourlife.com, one of our favorite sponsors, one of the favorite products that we have ever uh, pipped the people to here on the program, and now they're back with us just in time for the holiday season. Paint Your Life is a service where you can send these fine folks a photograph or a combination of photographs of your family, your friends, your vacation spots, cherished pets, even a shot of you in action, for example, whatever your action is, and they will turn it into a world-class hand-painted portrait. And you can get it in as little as two weeks. So not only can you, as I said, use one picture, but you can use multiple pictures and combine family members from different generations into the same painting. It's a team of world-class artists. You work with them. The details are perfect. It's a user-friendly platform that makes it easy to order these portraits. And then you can sit back and either watch the grin on your face or watch the grin on your family's faces or your friends when you give it to them. And at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed right now because they're back with us and they love us and we love you and love's in the air. For a limited time only, get 20% off your painting and free shipping when you text the word DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, to 64000. That's DRIVE to 64000. Three zeros on the end of that. Message and data rates may apply and terms apply. You can see those at paintyourlife.com terms. But again, for a perfect gift for anybody in the family or anybody in your social circle, whether it's a picture or a combination of pictures, family, pets, favorite rock stars. We don't give a shit. They'll do it. Paintyourlife.com, 20% off and free shipping if you text the word DRIVE to 64000. Who still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. 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 Hello again, friends. And you are our friends. And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive Through right here on this day. It's almost winter officially, but it sure feels like it for at least most of you. Well, some of you. There's a lot of you out there. For some of you, it feels like winter. For others, you're having a great time. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. I got nothing today. So here he is, the star of the show, Mr. Jim Cornette. 
Well, I shit myself three times on Monday. I thought I'd just start out and get that over with. That's maybe the the blanket statement for the past week or so of my life. You say on this day, is this a day? It's gonna be I just told you it's gonna be one of those days. Cause I'm on drugs and I've been suffering from oxygen deprivation for several days. So anything could happen here today. Brian, my long streak came to an end. And to be honest, uh, I almost had three years, but I have actually once again gotten sick. And it happened, and I'm not accusing you of in this, by the way, because but when we recorded our last podcast, the experience, my show, I said, I'm, I'm catching something. And I'll go into details on why I knew this. But I said, I'm catching something. I'm getting something. And since then, yeah, it encapsulates my life. I shit myself three times on Monday. You may be hearing chainsaws in the back, folks. That's a whole nut. We'll save that one for the experience. This is such that a involves- open. Corky the Lumberjack and, and the city of Louisville. <laughs> but ne- never before have the words I shit myself been followed by you may hear a chainsaw in the background. <laughs> well, there's there's a, there's a separate subplot. God damn it. <laughs> 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 I told you not to make me laugh when we started this. No, looky here. We did the experience last week, and we had just welcomed you back into the chair, the chair, full time. And you and I had celebrated somewhat off air that we were now going to finally go back to our normal recording schedule. You know, it was just a few months ago that the the people, the cult of Cornette, were saying, gosh, you guys are working overtime. We had those breaking news updates coming out on youtube and we were bam bam just johnny on the spot on the news on tv and everything and then obviously we explain on the experience and and again thank you to everybody who's reacted to the news of uh, brian's father passing away but nevertheless we said okay you know you're back in the chair and i'm in perfect health and this is gonna be sunshine lollipops rainbows and waterfalls from here on out right and fucking hell. Here's what had the cold came from inside the house. Cause I know a lot of people go, how did Cornette get sick? How good did he catch it from a squirrel? What, you know, what the fuck? Well, as I, Brian, you already know the story of this, but again, Stacey, I both know it's flu season and it's the, they got the respiratory infection going around in children and the flu season is like four times worse. And it's, Around here, at least, it's on the local news. I'm not talking about whatever you think about the national news. I'm talking about our goddamn local Fox station, for fuck's sake. They're not controversial. Fucking flu's off the charts and the respiratory illness in the kids, and we still got COVID, but, you know, we're all vaccinated, blah, blah, blah. And I was about, already we both had appointments with the doctor this past Tuesday, just me for a renewal of my meager blood pressure prescription and uh, blood work for my annual physical for them to tell me I'm in perfect health again. 
and stays for a follow-up on a thing, check she had on her back or whatever. We've already got a doctor's appointment. We're feeling fine. And the one Stace goes to Versailles, visit our friends right before Thanksgiving, takes Harley over to play with the dogs while there's people with jackhammers over here in the house and just has a nice little visit. They don't go anywhere either. They don't, you know, fucking go to music festivals in Rio de Janeiro where they're going to be hanging off of slobbering people. So everybody, but the mother-in-law is there. Comes in, oh, Stacy gives her a big hug. And she, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. How you been? Just getting over a cold, but I'm feeling much better. And then Stacy's like, hey, you just hugged me before you, you buried the lead there, lady. So that was two days before Thanksgiving, right? Lady. Lady. Lady, you had a big bad virus and you blew it on me. And now I am puking blood out my nose. <laughs> so anyway, she comes home and we've got the big Thanksgiving dinner and everything planned. And I'm actually taking three days off for the first time since action figure Armageddon began before, you know, my birthday in September. And the first thing that she says when she gets up on Thanksgiving morning is, "Hot you. And I said, well, back at you. What? Uh, and she was, oh, no, it's just, it's, it's the weather because it's been cold and hot and rain and none. And okay, we're, we're going to power through this. And by the time we finished, you know, the Thanksgiving dinner, she's, okay, I got to go to bed. All right. Well, it's to give her space to, you know, sleep and rest and snot out everywhere. I'll sleep in the office for a few nights. Just in case, because I can't get, we got to record and we got to got to do this and that and the other thing. One of us got to be healthy. Okay, so that's what we're going to, we're going to, each end of the house. And that's what we, and, and bless her, I was going to take the days off. Well, then I did, well, what the fuck? I'm going to sit here and watch TV. So I'm signing action figures, folks. The, uh, the the customers at Cornette's Collectibles benefited from my vacation being canceled. But she gets worse on Friday and Saturday. Well, it's Thanksgiving weekend and we've already got a doctor's appointment scheduled. She said, well, I'm going to fucking urgent care and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So finally, as I say, you and I on, on Sunday, we do the show. And she said maybe she was feeling a little better, but then she, you know, it's a lot of sweating and everything. At first we thought it might be a cold, but then the sh the chills and the sweating and the all that various things, it's got to be flu. So Monday morning, I get up and God damn it. Because no, because Saturday, Sunday, we did the show early. So it was, see, I've lost track of time, Brian, and I'm on drugs and steroids. So I could get fucking pissed. Sunday, we finished the show fairly early in the day. By the end of that night, I wasn't eating dinner. And it wasn't like a big head cold because I wasn't sneezing and my nose wasn't running. It was the, just no energy and no interest in food for me even. And all of a sudden I'm cold and we've got the heat turned up farther than it's ever been. And there's the cough and the hack and the da da da. 
See, this is goddamn WebMD right here. I'm going to tell y'all people exactly what to do about this here. There's going to be a fucking public service message in a minute because I've been to the doctor and he's told me these things. So then I don't eat dinner. And then on Monday, it's just, I'm, I'm trying to sign figures or I'm trying to just get up. I'll stare at shit while I'm sitting on the couch for fucking a while in between coughing fits and or you know, try to do something else. And then I realized I'd it'd gone by Monday. I really, I didn't think I ate anything on Sunday. I realized I didn't. So I said, I got to have some Ritz crackers. So I go from Saturday evening when I actually had a meal to Monday sometime evening with only eating two packages of Ritz crackers and two 12-packs of Sprite Zero, because you got to stay hydrated. So that became a situation where every time you had the big hard cough or you wanted to let a little Rudy Poot out into the world, you shit yourself, pal. And, and I'm not even drinking the protein shit that Vince was on. And then follows, you know, the, the, the waking up in a puddle of sweat. Now we're both sick. We're, well, fuck, no reason not to goddamn share the same room now as the... In the middle of the night, like Tuesday morning, I wake up and try to turn over in bed and I use my elbow to push off. And the sheet under me was so wet from perspiration that I squeaked like a tire squealing on a slick road and so loud it woke Stace and Harley up. What was that? It was just me squeaking. So we go to the doctor Tuesday morning and he at first was thinking, the C word. Because he said, well, you know, now with everybody being vaccinated, symptoms are, you know, milder and the variant symptoms are different and a blah, blah, blah. Um, he said, I bet you you're going to be positive. I'm like, ah, Newman, you know, I'm still going to be the last motherfucker to get this. I know it. I know it. And the test comes back and they stuck the thing up my nose. That's the first time I've ever had a COVID test. It's the first time I've ever fucking had any reason to suspect I had COVID. And he comes back in about 20 minutes later, whatever it was, you're negative. And I'm like, oh, yes, I knew it. Chic negative, baby. So then, but we've got to get the antibiotics and the steroids. And so it gives me the, the medicine, gives Stace the same medicine. We got the same thing. And boom, we... You know, get back in the car, get the prescription, come home, bundle up again, freezing to death. I've never turned to heat up this fucking far. But then since I'm saying he said, you know, get plenty of rest and take this medicine. Well, fuck, then I think that's the night I couldn't fucking sleep. I'm I, what? Yes, yes, it was. No, it was the next night. See again. But as I start taking this shit, the antibiotics makes me feel a little bit better. And it's far in my head, again, it's going to my chest, blah, blah, blah. But it was the night after that. I realized I'm not sleeping as good as I was before I was goddamn got the medicine. And then I looked at the sheet of paper. They give you the warnings and all the side effects and your uterus will fall out and your dick will turn green, right? And among the many things it says is just antibiotics and like prednisone or whatever it is may cause 
sleeplessness. I said, well, goddamn. Well, then he told me to take this medicine and get some sleep. Well, which is it going to be then? Take the medicine or get the sleep? It apparently can't be both. So we have been trying. We were going to record on Wednesday. And of course, I didn't have the breath. And uh, we are going to record Thursday, and I hadn't had the, the sleep or the uh, mental fucking acumen at that point. So we're ripping this thing out, and boy, is that an apt simile. Today, which is Friday morning, and we're going to do the best we can to provide the folks with a wonderful program. But to sum up my medical report... Uh, I'm feeling a little bit better, but I may wheeze at you today and or not talk as fast as normal. Uh, Stacy's feeling a bit better, but probably feels the same way I do, except she's not quite as silly as I am. And the doctor says everybody needs to get out and get their flu shot or their boosters or whatever they're overdue on to minimize and mitigate uh, feeling like caca and shitting yourself several times a day how you been brian you know jim it takes a big man to admit he's shit himself several times didn't oh, vince I'm mcmahon shit. get mad at jim ross for revealing that he shit himself i can't remember well it seems like you know see it could go either way because vince is the kind of guy that would like to hear that story and would get a kick out of it but maybe not when he was the perpetrator of the shark uh but i've i've shit myself a number of times when I haven't even been sick. It, it's all about, you know, placement and fucking surroundings, timing. You know, it, it, it I mean, it, it, technically, if you're, if you're shitting on purpose, but you still shit on yourself, isn't that shitting yourself? Explain exactly how this would happen. You're shitting on purpose and it happens to go on yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're trying to take shit. Are you in the forest? Where yes, you? yes. <laughs> yes. You're, you're, God damn it, I told you don't make me laugh. I can't, I can't let you. are in the forest. You're on an island in the, I guess, is that the Caribbean? St. Martin? Where is that? Is that the Caribbean? Well, there's plenty of islands. You can pick any island, yeah. Well, no, you're you're on an island behind a sand dune. You're in the forest uh, two or three times. Uh, you're on, you're actually in the forest, but it's off an interstate exit because it's two o'clock in the morning in the days when they didn't have all night gas stations at every exit. And you could, they used to lock their doors. They probably still do the gas station. Yeah. If you had an outside bathroom, it was locked. You had to get the key. If they're open, you know, closed, you're fucked. So, so that would be hanging off the back bumper of the car, trying to lean over the goddamn <laughs> edge of the fucking service road. Um, did well, you say, and, did you say two times in the forest? Two or three. <laughs> well, in my life there, and there was a, and how often actually, are you in the forest? Yeah. Well, no, when I was a kid, one time I was at the lake about fucking two miles behind the house here before they fucked the whole area up with subdivision. Uh, and we were fishing and I, you know, tried to go behind a tree to, you know, because I didn't want to walk all the way back to the house. And the son of a bitch, I lost my balance and fell backwards. It fell back in it, as they say, but actually I missed my shit and landed in a cow pie. 
And then there was another time that I actually. So it doesn't sound like you shit on yourself at all in that situation. Well, no, but but at the same time, you got shit on you. But then there's another time as I, I did slip and fall back in it. When I was, that was the time off the fucking exit at the thing. Yeah, anyway. How old were you? How old were you? What? It was about 30, 35. Oh, okay. Oh, you're, what, are you talking about fishing or are you talking about at the interstate? Any of these, because I think there has to be an age cutoff. Like it doesn't count before like the age of. I don't know, ten or twelve. That's oh well, a- I was I was under twelve then in the in the cow pie incident. So it's your show. People always want to know what the Midnight Express did with their time off. They were in the forest having these wild adventures with cow pies. No, the and- boy. Actually, no. Wait a minute. Were the boys with me one time? No, I was alone. I've had to shit twice coming back in the middle of the night from a fucking town where there you were miles from anywhere. And pulled off the side of the road. And because of my bad knees, I can't squat sufficiently to do that for that long, that deep, and not get any on me. So my mode of preference is that I'd get behind the car and, and yes, bend my knees and crouch down somewhat. But if you grip the back bumper, then you're leaning backwards and you're shitting straight down but your feet are kind of you know perpendicular angular underneath the bumper and and i'm able to hold myself without putting a strain on my knees don't you see matthew and then you just evacuate your bowels and then fucking get a wide stance around it and avoid it and you've already got something there i've got a a car towel a burger towel sitting right there it's ready to you know, do the maintenance and then you go on your way. But the one time <laughs> yeah, you when, made I it sound re- easy. Yeah. when I was reaching for the burger towel, my other hand slipped off the goddamn bumper and there was some fucking, there was some intermixing between the me and the, and the poopy. What do you do to get rid of the pants or what? I figure you landed. Actually, I don't know where you landed. Did you get well, rid of the no, shirt? What did you land? I didn't have my pants on. I was going to shit in my pants. I took my pants off. But when you fell no, back, did you, it, when you're shitting behind the bumper, did you take your pants all the way off or did you roll them down a little bit and then squat you, or whatever the fuck you, you were doing? I'm wearing goddamn like fucking sweatpants as far as I can remember. Zubaz back in those days, maybe. So now you just fucking, I didn't want to. You, you would shit in the pants, even if they were around your knees. Then by the time you stood up to perform the uh, the performance with the burger towels, there might be some drippage, and then you got to sit back in the pants and get back in the car. Then you're cross-contaminating your own feces back into your flesh and your clothing and then putting it in your car seat. Oh. And then you don't know where it'll go from there. So the best thing to do is just take the pants off and set them up on the goddamn trunk. And then fucking perform the lean back with the burger towel with an easy reach and then perform the cleanup <laughs> and then go on about your, your merry way. But in this, in that one case with slipping off the bumper, there was more burger towels involved. That's what, but I'll tell you what happened. We went to St. Martin for the NWA convention in 1987. Crockett flew himself and you know like i think two or three people two of the promoters elliot mernick um 
and all like 15 or 20 of the top guys to St. Martin for the weekend for the NWA convention because there was no NWA convention anymore. It was in name only. It was a tax write-off for them. There was no promoters meeting where they voted on the title anymore or whatever. In 86, he took us to Las Vegas. So it was just Crockett rewarding the top guys. And so we all go to St. Martin and everybody's wife got to come. And so we're, I, I'm talked into, as I've, by the previous administration, into a boat ride. About boat ride now, I sound like goddamn, yeah, they were playing Camp Town Races, saying it was an ice cream truck. No, it was a fucking, not a cruise, but what am I searching for? Maybe an excursion, a three-hour tour where they cooked, a, they took you to an island, cooked a meal, and served it to you, and then brought you back from the fucking island, right? And it'd take three or four hours. And it didn't sound bad, and it was supposed to be a, you know, a classically trained chef or whatever. I think it was a crappily trained chef, but we'll get to that in a minute. So, go out there, and of course, we're going to be on a fucking boat in the middle of the goddamn Caribbean or Caribbean or wherever that part of the world is. We got to get sunscreen. I was not a noted tanner in my 20s. And so I reach up and at the fucking gift shop or whatever and grab the bottle off the SPF, whatever the highest protection is, right? I grab one. No, I had her grab one. That's what it was. Even further fucking proof of my innocence. Somebody had put the SPF non-existent bottle in the goddamn SPF, this is a fucking sun shield column, and she didn't look. And we get out there, we put all this shit on us, we think we're covered up, where radiation could not penetrate this fucking shield we put on, right? We're going to ride on this boat, eat this fucking lunch on this island, ride back, and there'll, there'll be the end of it. All the way there, boom. I'm thinking, I'm getting fucking hot. Give me some more of that goddamn sunscreen. Put some more on. We eat the lunch. Within 20 minutes, I mean, some people have not yet fucking finished picking their teeth. My stomach started bubbling. I'm like, what is there a uh, is there a restroom on that boat? Because there's only like eight of us, I think, including the the captain, the skipper. Is there a uh, restroom on that? Uh, no, sir. <laughs> but you can, you know, you can go. What if you got to do number two? I'm thinking. I didn't at the time. I didn't want to come out and say to all of these strange people that I'd been hornswoggled into spending a fucking afternoon with. And I didn't particularly have anything in common with any goddamn one of them. It was idly fucking staring off into space. I didn't want to tell them all. I'm about to shit myself. So I just wandered off. I just wandered off. And I got as far away as I could on the, And it's not like this is like Gilligan's Island with all these palm trees and shit. It's a pretty goddamn bear. It's a sandbar looking fucking thing. They can see me for a while. So I'll walk as far as I can go and get around some scrub brush. And as soon as I do that, I realize I have brought not a goddamn thing to wipe with. I don't. I was so verklempt over this whole situation I'd found myself in. 
that I did what I, and I was younger then. And, and that was, that was only the first, after the first knee surgery, the, the second one was uh, still, was so point is I, I was still, I could get down there. And then I said, all right, I'll use my tube sock. I'm where it's a brand. I just put it on that morning. It's not filthy. It's a white tube sock. I, I feel on the strange. beach. No, my sock that I'm wearing. What What do you mean? I said, on, got, the, on the beach. Are you on the beach? Well, no, we're on this island. There is a beach on this island. You can walk. It's. I'm not going to be walking around barefoot like fucking Tarzan. I've got my fucking tennis shoes on. There's goddamn sharp rocks and who knows what fuck else out there. Goddamn bones of fish. You're on the beach walking around with tube socks and tennis sneakers? No, they're on the beach eating the fucking food that made me have to shit. I'm in as far up in this goddamn <laughs> son of a bitch that they've landed us on as I can be that nobody can see me. And I won't go walk that far barefoot. So fuck you back to my story. <laughs> so I saw use. <laughs> I'll use one of my tube socks. God damn. Now I'm dizzy. And, and that worked right. That worked. But then I realized I can't, I can't walk back over there. We're in only one sock. Now, maybe if I take the other sock off, they won't, I'm wearing my shit. They won't notice, right? They, they, well, he was always just wearing shoes. You know, it's, it's the beach. As soon as I walk back over, my wife goes, what, what happened to your socks? I said, shut up. So <laughs> at that, that's the point where I fucking look down and I notice, wait a minute, why am I getting so fucking red? Cause there's no, like I said, there's no shade on this thing. And, and there's no real covered area on this little boat. And I, my legs and look at where I can see where I've taken the socks off. Now there's a, there's a difference. I said, give me, give me some more of that sunscreen. And I look, and that's where it's like, what is, is the lowest sun protection is either two or four or something like that. That's what it is. And I look, I look, what did you get? You should, I, it was, I got in the, okay. So now. We don't, it's, a, it's the middle of fucking summer in the Caribbean or the Caribbean. And we didn't bring goddamn full body suits. There's nothing really to cover up with. Like if you have a bath towel, we can wrap around ourselves and just get us fucking home. So we get back to the thing. And that's why I've told a story before picking up from there that it was the next day we were supposed to leave and I had to go back. We went to, was it Minneapolis? Uh, the night before that it was February 27, 1987. No, that was when I came back from Hawaii. God damn. It was, where did I go back from? Oh, go back to here. No, we went back to goddamn Pittsburgh. It was still Pittsburgh, but it wasn't the cage match. All right. Fuck story up. I'm on drugs. We, I've got to go back to the Northeastern United States, go back to work for Crockett. And my wife's going on back to Charlotte. So we got separate flights. So all night we both laid in bed shivering and in agony. Cause then we were full fledged sunburned. And I mean, red and raw 
and just ah, and couldn't have a fucking sheet on you. And then that was the fucking rib. Is that we had to? I had to go back to the Northeast. I put shorts on because I couldn't have shit on my legs, and now I can't even wear socks because my feet are fucking sunburned. Right. And, and I've got this white shit all over me. So I'm walking through. It was either an airport in New Jersey or upper Pennsylvania or whatever. Looking like a fucking lunatic. I got a T-shirt and shorts on and socks with no shoes. And I'm sunburned as fuck. And it's like 30 degrees outside and fucking whatever. And I was miserable. I couldn't even put my knee braces on after that for like three days. So that was a shitty experience. So that's another time, you, you know, and what are you going to do? You're going to shit in public. It's not really public. You're going to shit out in the open and let nature take its course. Seems to happen to you a little more frequently than the average person. I've been a lot more strange places than the average bear there, fella. How many how many people you know been in in half of the situations that I've been in through no through fault of my own or not just minding your own business and these things happen Well Jim I I was just I wasn't even there it was Owen all right so anyway have we uh, have we talked enough about poopy Well you know it's just it's unfortunate that it was set up so naturally but it makes me wonder that are you happy that when you went there you had not yet discovered Manscaped, I guess, now that I think about this transition, trying to be honest about it, but the knowledge you that know, one day there would be a service that we would transition to and talk about here on the show. You know, I'll tell you what, that I've not thought of it until you just brought it up, but ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and pubic hair enthusiasts of all ages, that would have saved me a lot of grief. Back in the days on the road... If Manscaped had been a thing, because back then, and I, you know, of course, the, a lot of the wrestlers shaved their bodies, the bodybuilders and the guys, the pretty boys and everything, they shaved various parts of their bodies, but they had to do it the old fashioned way with those big disposable razors or the daggum razor cartridges and shaving cream and all this shit. It was a process and there was a lot of damage done to various places. A lot of the wrestling fans never even saw. Back in those days, and in in other cases, like myself, who was not neither a bodybuilder nor a pretty boy, I was not able to do that because I didn't want to slice my shit up, right? So it would get sticky and it would get messy in those in those times where you were either out there in the in the ring sweating your balls off to give the people what they wanted, or when you were trying to give yourself what you wanted out behind the bumper of your car out in the woods, you know, in, in my stance. And a lot of burger towels would have been saved if I hadn't, because you know what that is, is that is, it's not a filter. It's not a filter. The hair around your asshole. It's not a filter. What it is, is an impediment impediment. You want all the effluvia to go all the way out, you don't want any of it to catch on the way, see? So therefore, I've found that not only if you jingle your balls at Christmas, but also if you will just take that Hershey Highway and just 
whack all the foliage off the left side down and the right side up, then you will be slicker than come on a gold tooth and clean as a whistle, even if you have to poop in the woods. That's just what I've found. And folks, the Manscaped Platinum Package 4.0 is the one-stop shop for the man who deserves it all, whether he wants to manscape his man parts or avoid pooping accidents. And while you're at it, it's good for the chest, it's good for the underarms, it's good for the forearms, it's good for the, the, the knife edge chops, it's good for all of them. The Lawnmower 4.0 body trimmer is what we're talking about, the best personal grooming implement that we have ever seen on this planet. But it comes along with the weed whacker nose and ear hair trimmer because you can't get the lawnmower up your nose or in your ear or up your ear and in your nose. Whichever way you try it, that won't work. That's why they made their own dedicated weed whacker. And it also comes with the crop preserver ball deodorant, the crop reviver ball toner. It also comes with the incredible brand new body buffer an incredible body scrubber that allows you to exfoliate yourself. And that's now becoming legal in more states. Brian, have you heard about this? I think, I think Mississippi was the latest to make exfoliating yourself legal. So now you can do it with the brand. Well, you can go to manscaped.com and check out all the implements and ingredients in the Manscaped Platinum Package 4.0. And this Christmas... It's never too early to start thinking about gifts, whether it's for a friend in these parts or a friend in your pants. You can make this season a jolly one. You can whack down a bunch of weeds with these bad little boys and do your little drummer boy a favor so that he doesn't trip on his way to mama's house to drum. What? <laughs> Is this or maybe coffee? he'll just end up beating it. I don't know. The little drummer boy. Come, they told him, pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. There you go. You've, you've got the rhythm. All right. If you go to manscaped.com slash JCE right now, you're going to get 20% off and free shipping on however many of these some bitches you buy because you, how many friends you got? Most of you out there, I know our listeners have at least one or two Imaginary friends, couple of make-believe friends, and a friend that actually owes them money. That's why they stick around. Uh, but nevertheless, get a bunch of them and just pass them out. Because that if, you know, I bet if everybody started making their crotches smell nicer, even if everybody was walking around clothed downtown, you could smell the difference in the air. Do something good for the environment this Christmas. Manscaped.com slash JCE, 20% off and free shipping. And make the world's crotches smell better. Well, speaking of shaving, Jim, let's talk about, before we get too much further into this show. I didn't really know we were in this show yet. I don't know what the fuck's going on. Well, some talent apparently has been shaved off the AEW roster. I know you haven't watched too much stuff because of your schedule, but... <laughs> because of my, my schedule of shitting myself, coughing, hacking, sweating, shivering... And fucking drinking 14 fucking Sprite Zeros a day. That's, I've been very busy. Not even taking into account the chainsaws and the drugs. You've been very busy. MJF and William Regal on Dynamite had a segment that a lot of people were talking about. Did you get a chance to see at least that? Yes, I did. Because well, here's it, it was Wednesday night. 
that I was sitting on the couch in the TV room and, and Stace had already, she'd turned the light out in the bedroom cause she wanted to try to sleep. And, and I think the, the, uh, whatever it is, the steroids or whatever that causes the sleeplessness works more on me naturally. Cause I'm a little wired up or anyway. So she's able to sleep a little more. So I'm trying to sit in a TV room. It's eight o'clock. I say, you know what? I'm Danielson versus Dax. Certainly, they'll lead with that. I knew I probably wasn't going to be able to make it to MJF because I was already, you know. <sighs> um, but I said if they, I, so I tuned in at eight o'clock, and instead of Danielson and Dax, they see I see Moxley walking through the crowd, and I see you know I can't, I can't stomach this feeling like this and looking at this guy to get to the match. I'll watch it tomorrow. So I. Felt even worse the next day, and, and there was no way I was going to subject myself to the whole program. Uh, that will happen on the experience this weekend. We're not going to talk about everything in minute detail, but I do want to see and discuss Danielson and Dax, obviously. But we, I had to watch the exploit. Our boy, I could, shouldn't even call him our boy because that's, you know, that's uh, disrespectful. Our new... AEW world champion and uh, the explanation, the presentation, whatever the fuck they're going to do. So that's what I watched and we'll discuss it. But this, I think nobody, nobody can deny now that this was not the original plan or even the original plan after CM Punk went down whether it was the the uh, whether the media scrum had happened or not he was still injured but from if starting from that point where they they knew okay we ain't gonna have punk for two months or whatever the fuck and uh, whether or not he ever comes back and we don't have it but here's the aew title picture we're going to start from right now this thing is starting to remind me of when I used to book OVW in a reactionary basis based on John Laryngitis calling to tell me, okay, uh, I know you uh, thought you'd have this guy for six months, but we're taking him next week. Or, uh, yeah, we're sending a guy down that you've never heard of. He'll be there tomorrow. Put him on TV Thursday. Or, you know, here's here's your top heel in the company we've just debuted him as a preliminary baby face on smackdown with no notice or whatever the case and that i would have to make adjustments there's a lot of adjustments being made and i don't think anybody can say that if they look at what's i'm not going to shit on what they did this was the thing they should have done based on what is going on right now so don't think i'm gonna shit on this before we get to the details of it but nobody can think that this is what they sat down two months ago or 10 weeks ago or whatever and said, we want to do this from week to week to week, and this is it. Do you see what it did? Am I delirious, or did you understand that? No, and I actually just read some quotes from an interesting interview Stokely Hathaway did on, maybe it was Renee Paquette's show, and he said that the original plan coming out of the pay-per-view, out of uh, All Out, I guess it was, was for them, the firm, the feud with CM Punk because CM Punk specifically requested that he wanted to do something with Stokely because he liked Stokely. He thought there's something there. I think if you hear that, 
it's easy to read that that also means it would have been Stokely the Firm and MJF versus right. CM Punk. Well, but but I'm I'm talking about after that as well. Once they determined there's going to be no Punk, what's our plan now? It's still not the same. This is literally, it's looking to me reactionary based on what the fuck is going on and who Tony is listening to from one week to another and who they think is still going to be fucking around and or who might not still be around, as we'll discuss. I don't think this is the coherent fucking line that they have been intending to do for the past eight or ten weeks. I think it's going back and forth. It's 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 either that or they're all just crazy. I don't know. But I it looks to me like what I was doing when I would ha- hear from some outside force that I could not control, which Tony, there's plenty of them for Tony right now. Nope, I ain't gonna do that, or nope, you ain't gonna have this guy, or nope, uh, or or, or yes, uh, this guy's gotta be involved, or whatever the fuck. Cause I'm just uh, Somebody ought to write it down, synopsize it as they do in the television. But here's our show Bible and tell this coherent linear story. Can you imagine that if they if they just took like the top 20 most used wrestlers or talents on AEW television and, and for one year said, here is their coherent linear story and everybody would be fucking everybody's dog and goddamn it'd be a fire drill i don't know if they'll allow that on tbs but what i was going to say is in every way you're right except for actually the big overarching thing the beginning and the end that actually tied together mjf confronting regal with that email this crushed me i wanted to kill myself yeah i was a young wrestler this is what you did to me going into feeding into regal wanting to see him do it clean gets regal turns on him Ends it with him laying there, gets stretchered out. Who the fuck gets stretchered out anymore? He gets stretchered out to say goodbye, to go back home to Connecticut. And MJF hits him with the email. That part made sense. And MJF's more evil than ever before because he did this just to screw this guy who people actually like for some reason. Yeah, and that is... is... <sighs> That's one of a couple of perfect... That is the imperfect scenario. The problem we got we got all of this other caca and we got it in two weeks because now apparently Regaling will be there long, which you called. Except it, the last week's exit that he made was a shitty way to go, but you said it does in case he never comes back. That's his exit from television, and you were right. Who were you right about their exit? And we never saw him again about a year ago. Ah, nevertheless. Cody Rhodes? Cody. Um, <laughs> so, but but it would have been the shits. This was the way they should have done it, but they gave him two exits. But they also gave him two exits. If they had, I think this obviously uh, puts a period on whether they got Regal for long or not, because if they had Regal for long, they would have, left him with MJF so that they could establish themselves so that when MJF did that, it still would be so much better. But instead, they rushed through it. But then why was Regal there last week when all he did was stand there and he didn't speak? And and we said, why is he a bump on a log? Was that just to placate 
That was to appease Moxley. That's well, exactly what that was. Placate Moxley so he could at least tell him off to his face on TV before he left. Anyway, so obviously Regal comes out on the the segment on television, and it, you know gives and and has heel heat, which well, this would be so good if if Tony had. Not only had a real company, Pinocchio, but actually given Regal some important standing in it, not as an on-air person. I'm talking about to help run that fucking zoo. Maybe he would have wanted to stay even though, you know, Triple Paul got back in power. But And we could talk all about Regal and all that afterwards, but you said something a few weeks ago about Moxley, and it was true. He had boo-boo face. I don't want to do the job face. Regal had that here too. Well, and and I think a lot of this is obviously feeding off each other since it's same social circle. But but anyway, he he brings MJF out, and it would have been a great combination. Like I said, if all worlds had aligned, and MJF's promo there, he has heat back again, and he has his demeanor back again he gave he still has his partisans obviously but now they were pissed off that because they i mean at this point part of them may be working with him and part of them now are pissed off because now well now you've gone too far you know blah 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 whatever the fuck but the point is he gave as adequate and articulate an explanation tying all of these things together that you've, you've mentioned as possibly, I think, could humanly, verbally be done on a wrestling program. I think he needs to lose the word disgusting. Get your dictionary of synonyms and antonyms, Maxwell. I had one by the time I was 22 years old. And, uh, but... You know, he's he's still, I thought, a little bit more on insulting the people, and we uh, analyzed that in one of the shows we did a couple months ago. He was uh, he he is going to have to again heal himself to each town individually to fully become a heel because uh, they're seeing him, the people in. Des Moines or Chicago or Indianapolis or whatever town he's in or seeing him for one of the one or two times they'll see him live that year. So they're ah, they're going to be up, but he shouldn't rely too much on that because it becomes repetitive more easily for the television audience. They're not as digging it as much because they're not in the, in the arena, in the environment. They're not being grouped in with the, the audience that is being insulted. And so they're sitting back watching it in a more detached fashion on, on the screen. And then it become more than, uh, I mean, all the witty references in the world, you know, boom, boom. Cause he's so quick are welcomed. But when he just goes for the, you disgusting, poor trench mouthed individual or whatever, it becomes more repetitious on television. I think you should watch that because this was a long segment anyway. But the point is he made the explanation. They uh, uh, introduced the new BBB belt, the big Burberry belt. Uh, 
Which it didn't look. I can see it when they did the close up of it, but farther back, it didn't look appreciably different from the other one. But I get the point. When they first revealed it, you couldn't see the. You couldn't tell that it was anything other than yeah. just another version of the belt. And then they had to do the close ups. But close up, close ups are everything. Um, but at that point, then as he's addressing Regal, you know, he, he finishes the whole Zabada and walks around behind him, which it was kind of odd because Regal was all the way in the corner. <laughs> I was like, why is he walking over there to turnbuckle? And but then out of nowhere, boom! With the uh, brass knucks. Oh, and, and the and the great line at the end, where he said, uh, "You told me not to, not to grab go for the diamond ring, but to go for the brass ring." And you know the little play on Vince's famous comment. And then boom! And he blasts him, and Regal goes down and stay. I'm. I don't know how I felt about Regal laying there completely immobile for that long of a time because as he goes down then mjf finishes his promo kneeling beside him it was a bit of a long bit at the end where mjf was talking so long that the doctor and or somebody should have been there um it, they, it, that doesn't mean they hey stand there with brass knucks in his fucking hand it doesn't mean that the doctor has to you know, physically assault him, try to get him away, but it could have been good if they slid in and gave him some distance just to where there was some help arriving on the scene because the time that was elapsed when he was squatting there, talking to him, combined with Regal never moving on his own, I don't think ever, until the doctor and his, they turned him over and put him on the backboard. <sighs> I... He got hit in the base of the skull with brass knuckles. Yes, you know, he and he did, took a great bump and he laid there. Should there have been some, I don't know, even would a leg involuntarily move or would there be a twitching of a hand or whatever? It was, it was almost, I don't know. But nevertheless, then to my surprise and pleasure, they actually showed the backboard process and, you know, them. they stayed with something. They let something happen rather than, oh, my God, his head just hit the ground after being cut off by a chainsaw. We'll be right back. They stayed with it until they got in the ring and they got him on the backboard and they wrapped his neck up and the announcers are making it a fairly, fairly grave situation or whatever. And as they're carrying him out, then they fade to black so at least they had the discipline and the restraint to not just kill william regal and then just go to black before the doctor ever even pronounced time of death so let's go back to last week with moxley what do you think that was do you think that's moxley getting upset because he can't get his hands on regal in an angle even though that's the guy he wants to work with the most that it makes no sense because if he gets his hands on him before mjf does it completely takes everything that mjf's about to do away from him Right. Well, exactly. Yes. Obviously, you couldn't have. That's why I was saying last week, why is Regal standing there taking his tongue lashing? They can't touch him. Makes Moxley look like an idiot. Danielson has to come out there and talk about how he found the love for his mother of his father is through his brother that he never knew 
or whatever the fuck that song and dance was that got Brian <laughs> Danielson moved out of the fucking building. <laughs> oh, um, and so <laughs> instead of instead of MJF and and Regal both being on the movie set, yeah, in the and and I have a VTR from it said we'll be there next week and tell you ignorant sorry sons of snake feces what's up um instead of that uh he stands there and takes his tongue lashing and then walks off and turns danielson heel makes moxley look like an idiot the only had to because think about this for moxley and i had some people said oh he didn't moxley wouldn't have had boo-boo job face for dropping the world title to MJF because he already wanted to take time off. He was supposed to have a vacation. Number one, a fucking vacation from a one day a week job where you make seven figures. Fuck you. I didn't ask for a goddamn six week vacation from a goddamn seven day, eight time a week job from Crockett where I was making a couple hundred grand. Secondly, there's a difference between not getting to go on your vacation after you dropped the title that you already knew you were going to drop. And after all of this, now he's got it again. And now that he, he ain't ready to fucking drop it. But the point is again, there it, Moxley's caught in the middle of this thing because this was not a coherent story from start to finish. And it hasn't been even since punk and the media scrum and his injury where they knew one way or another he wasn't going to be around. It's been back and forth. And Moxley, I think, as I've said, thinks he probably might have been the one to carry this thing, maybe. You could tell kind of for a couple weeks there he was getting a little saucy. But it just it doesn't make sense unless Moxley just wanted to come out and tell fucking William Regal off to his face because elsewise... He got turned on by this whole Blackpool Combat Club nonsense. He got turned on by a guy that then was going to get turned on by the guy that he got turned on for. This sounds like the fucking plot of a gay porn film. But there would be there would have been no MJF beating or brain damaging William Regal on this program. If it had, and now PW insiders come out and said that the rumors are strong. Tony Khan won't comment, but that Regal is WWE bound. And, and right now it's the first part of December and he only signed a contract nine months ago. So even if he signed a one year contract, it wouldn't be up this soon unless he was just asking, but yeah, but please cannot check, please. Can I just leave? I want to so, go home. I've, Please I've let me go home. Go home and be alone. Um, so, so yes, Moxley should have in a perfect wrestling world. It makes total sense for Moxley at some point to have gotten his hands on William Regal and committed physical mayhem. But it didn't make sense in what they are doing now for anybody to get him except MJF, but it doesn't make sense what they did now unless William Regal is being let out of his contract to go back to the WWE earlier than 
they apparently assumed it, it, when they signed him that he would be. Have I summarized and synopsized that in a appropriate manner for a person on on drugs? Yes, and I'll do my best to be on drugs with you after the next break. But let me. Well, that ask- way you got to get sick first. You can't just willy nilly just do some drugs. I'm in mourning. But listen, let's talk about William Regal. Let's talk about his run in AEW for a moment here because it's pretty interesting. He gets there, I think, in January. It was the end of last year, early this year. I think somebody said it wasn't it almost March when he debuted. I saw somebody on Twitter or something say that. Well, we'll check, but it was early this year. It wasn't like he was there a long time. We heard that he was someone that people like Danielson and Moxley really wanted to have there. They pushed him to Tony. Tony brings him in. They create this Blackpool Combat Club. He starts doing commentary during their matches. He's not at ringside. He's on commentary. They really don't do too much that matters to Blackpool Combat Club. He doesn't get involved in too much. They don't really act like a traditional faction. It's just matches every now and then with other people. And then this MJF stuff, which kind of came out of, again, the fallout of CM Punk being gone. At what point did he tell Tony Khan he wanted to go back to WWE? That's the interesting thing, because he hasn't been there a long time. He's witnessed a lot of drama there. (laughs) At what point did he say, you know what, I want to go back? And then the question is, after that point, why did they use him the way they did? And how is that responsible? Especially if you can't get a full payoff. Moxley will never get his hands on him now unless he goes back to WWE. (laughs) So that's irresponsible. When did Tony know? And also, if he indeed, and this contract situation's up in the air. No one knows if it's a one-year deal, a three-year deal. And if in either case, it's just Tony being a nice guy and letting him out of the contract to make other people happy. But what kind of precedent does that set for a Malachi Black, for a Miro? for an Andrade, for anyone else who may or may not have previously requested their release and not gotten it? Well, uh, with the precedent, I mean, there's going to be ways that that either people can justify it to Tony or Tony can justify it to other people. Well, William Regal wasn't a wrestler, and, you know, and, and they wanted him in an office position, and and you know, something that we couldn't provide here and out of respect for him. And and there's validity to that stuff. You know, where Tony, because I can't just let every active wrestler on my roster, no matter what their status, you know, ask for a release and be free. Uh, But there's there's ways you can justify it or phrase it. But the point is also that it's, again, it was Vince's WWE regime that fucked up and let a lot of these guys go to begin with that would never have probably particularly uh, gone to or appeared with or dealt with AEW had they not been let go. Um, but I, th- I think the biggest probably thing that he can justify it to a lot of these guys is respect for Regal and, and his age at this point. It's not like he wants to work till he's 75, I wouldn't think. So and everybody knows that he's been close and been an important person with Triple H. But then again, that's that's also one of the things we talked about. I'm not saying William Regal's a dishonorable person or an industrial, you know, espionage agent or either an 
undercover agent for the FBI sent down here to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. What I'm saying is that he is knows now and has talked to and knows the talents of and the strong points and weaknesses of and the professionalism or lack therein of of everybody in that locker room at this point, and he will be working closely alongside the fucking head of the biggest wrestling promotion in the world. Um, so happy days are here again. And the booking of Steven Regal, or excuse me, William Regal. William, that's it. Well, you and Tony Schiavone both made the same mistake. But his booking, let's just say since the spring, how can you justify it now with the idea that at some point, because I heard he was going back at least two and a half months ago. So at some point before that, they knew he was going back. And so I don't have his timeline in front of me. And and that's the that's the problem is you can't... Here's the thing, a problem that Tony would have that anybody would have. You can't hire somebody and then be afraid to use them and make them important and or more of an attraction or whatever on a program because you're afraid that then they'll turn around and leave and go back. Um, because then you're hiring people and not using them to their fullest potential. Having said that, if if this was a, with me, if this had been a three-year contract and he had been asking a couple months ago, I would, you know, then we'd probably had to work something out because you don't want a guy, especially of regal standing, that's that doesn't want to be there as being held against his will. And that's nothing. Younger wrestlers, or at least wrestlers, is still active on a full-time basis. They can understand better being held against their will than, you know, a guy like Regal. But but if it was a one-year contract, I would have had to say to his lordship, suck it up, buttercup. You got to stay with me for a year because I signed you for a year and and I will, you know, feature you and do whatever they can. But let's let's do this program with MJF or whatever and then the culmination can be him laying you out and off we go. Um, but, you know, and I, I don't know. Maybe Regal's put pressure on him because they're putting pressure on Regal from the North Pole up there. You know, so I don't know. If, if it was just a one-year deal, I would have thought, Jesus Christ, there's only a few more months, but maybe there's more to the story. I Again... <laughs> I don't know what the fuck Tony thinks about his booking. But it that's why I've just said over the past three, I know they've had a lot of turmoil, but there's a lot of this shit that, that doesn't stem off the punk and or EVPs being gone. Even if they were still around, if everybody else was going to be in the right as the same place as they thought they were two months ago, they would have gone through all these fucking hoops and hollers and ladder shoots and ladders. Well, I want to ask you some follow-ups about MJF, but first, on the topic of MJF, of course, he just had his big title win in Newark, New Jersey, and besides the fact that it was in Newark, I'm sure it was a big night for him and his family, perhaps one they could celebrate with multiple photos on a skylight frame. Well, you just jumped right into it, didn't you? I'm still scrolling. But I'll tell you what, right now, folks, holidays are just around the corner. I think we mentioned that. How many quarters are we going to have in this show? I'm like a rat trying to find a corner in a silo. 
If you're looking for a good gift idea that your parents or in-laws will genuinely love, if they're your in-laws, give them the fucking finger. How about they'll love that? No, no, we want to celebrate the in-laws yeah. with this spot here today. Not the in-law that gave me and Stacy this fucking flu. Uh, but <laughs> well, it wasn't your in-laws. <laughs> well, it was an in-law. That's all I know. Where the mother-in-law. Well, uh, I've never met a mother like that. Anyway. We want to welcome them back, though. Our friends at Skylight Frames, they've been away for a while. They were abducted by aliens, subject to probing, and then now they're back. But they've been one of our most popular sponsors on the program here over the past several holiday seasons. And the deal on this thing, I won't even make fun of it because the new fans, new listeners may not even remember what the heck it does to begin with for real. But the Skylight Frame is a photo frame that you can... It's a beautiful designer frame you can display in your home. If you don't live in a home, then whatever, you know, public or state facility you live in, whether it's a prison or, you know, institution or You can display it wherever there's electricity. Well, yes, but, they, you know, especially it's good for, you know, in your home. Well, some people live in state homes, some don't. I'm just saying. But you display this photo frame, but it doesn't just hold a picture. It doesn't just have a physical picture in it. It sets up and you connect it to the wireless network, that Wi-Fi that we hear about. There's a touchscreen involved, and it's real easy. And you just, boom, you turn it on, and you can send photos. Everybody can. Everybody in the family that has the information. Uh, I don't think anybody's hacked it yet to send a picture of their sphincter to well, Gladys in Cleveland or whatever. But if you give the... Don't know don't why we had to go there. Ideas. Don't know why we had to go there. No, don't give people that idea. No. Well, anyway, everybody in the family that you give the information to that can be a part of this can email pictures to this skylight frame and they pop up in seconds. And multiple people can send photos and then you got the slideshow going on. See, right? Don't you see? And it's a got a it's a black frame and a white mat, so it looks like a real photo frame and is beautiful and decorator and designer and all that good stuff. And it's got a touch screen and you can swipe through the photos and you can contact the beloved family members and close personal friends and sexual partners, whoever that sends you these things, you can tap them to let them know that you love them or possibly you can Give a thumbs down. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. I don't know if there's a thumbs down. I think you can just display love with Skylight Frame, considering yes. you're just giving the link to people you love. Well, whichever thumb or finger you want to give somebody, you can give it to them with a Skylight Frame. And now you can choose from two size options. This is a, a new thing that has not been done before. Either the original 10-inch, that's not to be confused with the Aerosmith Big 12-inch, but the original 10-inch or the new large 15-inch frame. So that's two options to choose from. The 15-inch, imagine what your family's pictures will look like. I bet your mother-in-law looks like she's on a drive-in movie screen. Anyway, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you do not love your skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. They're not a skylight they'll put into the roof of your home, but the skylight frame. You can preload it with pictures and send it to people, or you can suck those pictures in off the interwebs as they come in, or you want to send them 
of anybody or anything candid photography right now, folks. You can get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, or I assume more than one if you'd like to stock up, when you go to skylightframe.com and enter the code DRIVE, that's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T, skylightframe.com, enter the code DRIVE, $15 off with the promo code DRIVE, spread love, joy, cheer, happiness, but not germs. For the holidays. That's right, Jim. Skylight Frame. We're happy to have them back. It's a product that I have here in my house. We have a couple of them here in the house, and I've given them out as gifts before. But I wanted to ask you about the people who were not happy that AEW is not embraced or gone with MJF as a babyface. Now you look at it and you see that it was all a big fake out to get to where we are today. It was something that was a reaction he got in Chicago because people were happy to see him again. They were happy to have him as part of this promotion again. That became Chris Jericho going to the press conference and insisting that he will be a babyface. Maybe he did some more insisting behind the scenes. And here we are today. The people who think that AEW is making a mistake not going with MJF as a babyface, what do you think? Well, And let's uh, let's define people. Now, we're not talking about the fans, right? We're talking about people in the industry who have said, or are we talking about both separately for different reasons? I think some people were saying, oh, yes, yes, he's going to be a big baby face, and they're fans and they'll get over it. I think there were some people that wanted him to be a big baby face so they could be a big heel because they can't be the big heel when somebody else is the big heel. But the point is, at least in this situation, and like I said, they flirted with it a few times. And if you go and look at the whole thing with MJF since September was a a swerve or a plot to get him to where we got, as we just discussed, and where he is today, and having knocked Regal out, etc. There's a, a number of things in there that still wouldn't have been necessary to put MJF in a babyface position and or necessarily didn't make sense if if someone wasn't trying to lead it in that direction. To me, watching the television program. Or maybe they just don't know what the fuck they're doing. But at least MJF never full-fledged, got juiced, laid out, nailed to the fucking wall, and then came out and repented all of his transgressions and you know, vowed to kiss children and cure cancer in his spare time, even as a plot, even as part of the the plot, right? He he still was MJF. He figured out a way to navigate that where he was MJF all the way through it. Even when he was playing with people, he was doing it as a fucking obvious megalomaniac and smartass. Disingenuous jerk. You know, disingenuous jerk is another way of saying megalomaniac and smartass. Um, well, you had that dictionary since you were 22. Well, you know, that's just the synonyms and antonyms, boy. You get down to the goddamn, <laughs> you get down to the synonyms and antonyms, boy, you're really shucking that corn all the way down to the cob. Anyway, so he, he navigated that and came out of it. But there, as you said, pushing him to have become a baby face. And we've talked about this before. That's for people who either don't understand the fucking wrestling business and or why MJF has his appeal 
or had selfish reasons, one or the other. Pick, are you stupid or are you crooked? Pick it. Um, but it's way too soon. You don't compare MJF to a Ricky Steamboat. You compare MJF to a Roddy Piper. And a lot of people forget that because they know everything that's happened that happened in Roddy Piper's life now. But as it was happening contemporaneously, Piper was in a lot of places very popular before he ever actually became a babyface. That was part of what he was, is that he was he was a heel and they would hate him for what he did in the ring against the top guys that they really loved, especially when it was a heinous angle or a vicious act, but they would still listen to his promos. And they still begrudgingly, that's why they, you know, he was one of the classic wrestling heels you love to hate because of just he was a unique personality and the way he it was him. It was just the way he was him. And MJF for the same reason. And we've gone into great depth, and you could hear it on the YouTube channel on the clips about his appeal is not selling like Reggie Morton and getting sympathy from the crowd and making a fiery comeback. Remember the babyface comeback that he actually made in that thing where he beat up the firm a couple months ago or a couple a couple weeks ago? That got a popcorn fart because they didn't want to see MJF in that position. And it's not natural. It doesn't look right for him. They don't want to see, see him selling and fighting from underneath and triumphing over adversity. The reason why they want to see MJF is because he is Simon Legree. He is Ebenezer Scrooge. He is the classic villain, and you can't take your eyes off of him, but if he's not doing villain things, then he's not being himself, and he's just, you know, so you have to let a guy like that run for a while before then you find, and that's another thing. MJF's turn, whenever that turn may, if if it ever comes, when it comes, should have been one that was engineered by the masters in the territories, like the Eddie Grahams or the Bill Wattses. Because it's going to have to have, and I'm sure by then he will have all the pull in the, in the world to contribute, but it's going to have to have the over, the overarching producer of the whole thing, the boss, the director of the movie, who, whatever the fuck, it, it, picking the right people to be involved in, and laying ground rules down and monitoring it closely and having other people that are involved in it be consistent as well. And that's going to be difficult in AEW, I'll tell you that. But no, he needs to be MJF, the world champion, the devil himself, for a good run to establish what he is and who he is. And then you are able to start playing with different points of the presentation. However, again, because he's a classic heel in a modern environment with a modern update and a fresh coat of paint and a 26-year-old face and all that stuff, in the territories, you've, you've got your top heel over. Ric Flair in the Carolinas or whoever the fuck, right? And then he turns for a very good reason against another main event heel with even more heat because now he's he's achieved the status where he's become a prick, but he's our prick. And we want to see him against this other prick from the outside. 
And then once that happened, inevitably, that guy that got over as a heel but had to be switched babyface would get stale in that role because that wasn't what led him to the dance. Uh, Jerry Lawler in Memphis, every 18 months or so, had to tease, where well, you're going to see a return of the old king, meaning he was going to become a bad guy and cheat again against so-and-so, the heel they hated. Because Lawler, the babyface, for you know a number of years there in the in the uh, early and mid '80s, he had to switch every once in a while, freshen it up because that was what his until he became an iconic babyface, he was a a more impactful heel as a performer. Um, it's happened with different other people where they would need to leave the territory. Then, well, this is national TV, and unless it's the bidding war of 2024. He can't leave the territory. So you let these national TV runs percolate longer than you did the territories. Because you, once you switch a guy, his clock is ticking on whether they might have to, you, you know, they might, that once that initial hot angle where the babyface, Dusty Rhodes has become a babyface, is going to wipe out Gary Hart's army. Once Gary Hart's army's been wiped out, who's the next guy for Dusty? If you don't have one ready, hey, we like Dusty when he was a heel. Whatever the fuck. So you've got to keep people ready for him. And at some, because then if the occasion ever happened where he switched back, then you're starting to play with fire unless this is over a three or four or five-year period. Because then he's becoming inconsistent to himself and in his presentation. Does that make any sense? Yeah, the big show's there. Just look at the big show. That's what happens when you switch too many times. You don't get used effectively for most of your career. Yes, and there's no place to go where you can go away so they can miss you, except if it's a place where you can't come back from. It's like, you know, these these are only one-way fucking loser-leave-town matches. You can't ever come back. You brought up Ric Flair. So let's talk about, for any booker, and Tony Khan specifically, the challenges of booking a top heel, like a Ric Flair in, let's say, 1987-1988, and MJF now, who a portion of the fans enjoy, they like, even if he calls them disgusting or whatever it may be. <laughs> How do you book around that? And also with AEW, you know, they need to build up some guys. You know, we're getting to a point now where it feels like a lot of guys, other than an MJF, a lot of guys are missed opportunities. Jungle Boy, and they're trying to do something now. Ricky Starks, they're trying to do something now. Sammy Guevara is kind of stuck in place. So there's not a Sammy, lot of guys. Sammy, Sammy Guevara is stuck in a doghouse, I think, most of the time. But you need to build up some guys for a heel MJF. You need to have some guys. Obviously, you don't want to rush a Wardlow thing right now, and Wardlow's cooled off completely. But how do you book a heel world champion who a portion of the fans are going to like, unless all of a sudden, you know, the next Steve Austin comes to be his opponent. Yeah. Well, the, obviously the next major opponent and makes perfect sense is Danielson. He just, you know, MJF just laid waste to Regal. So, uh, Danielson would be natural. Uh, and, and also those matches I'm sure will be very good. And I don't think Danielson would be as, hard to work with mentally or physically as most of the other people that, you know, you could choose from. Having said that, that is indeed the problem. And you mentioned, you know, booking flair, booking a heel, you know, 
uh, champion, you've got to have strong baby faces, which is what, when Ric Flair was a heel and member of the Four Horsemen, they always had. And just the fact that, Ed, again, I'm not knocking Ricky Starks, but to this point, he has not been portrayed at the single main event world title level. World title level. Uh, and uh, they just had him win a tournament. And I'm not saying he shouldn't get an opportunity, but that's not an answer for him. That Ricky Starks is not the equivalent of staying in 1989, right? Not in, not in his presentation at this point. And the the one obvious baby face, Danielson, is the guy that just came out and had to fucking tell that tale of sorrow and woe and switch heel in front of half the crowd the other day on TV. Uh, but at least, yes, they will get behind him in this incident, you know, going for revenge for his lordship. But besides Danielson, who's been portrayed at a main event level, who is obviously has a long history and track record and respect from the fans. That's a money matchup. That's pay-per-view. Ricky Starks isn't. Not because of his talent, because of his presentation. Um, Moxley, nobody will see it against Moxley again. Please, God. No. God, no. Um, and explain to me who their other main event baby faces are. And if, does anybody want to see MJF against Twinkle Toes? God, please tell me no. Please, please well, tell me no. Beyond that, does that camp want to interact with people who aren't part of their clique anymore in any way? So, I mean, that's another issue. Well, but, and and vice versa. Would there be a few people not in that clique that would want to have to be put into a position to interact with that clique? And, here, and Paige, who just got in a... The... The strong baby faces are doing everything they can to split their appeal because now Paige is fighting Moxley. Uh, and and boy, howdy, I just can't wait to see how that turns out. But so somebody's going to naturally have to pick a side and blah, blah, blah. Dusty Rhodes as Booker of Ric Flair as champion had Sting, had the Road Warriors, had Magnum T.A., had Nikita Koloff as a baby face during that run, had Barry Windham, had at every point some of the, not necessarily the best working now, obviously Hawk and Animal never claimed to be goddamn real last name of Gotch. They were great attractions and they could work their gimmicks, but they weren't out there doing fucking hip tosses and fucking intricate chain wrestling. Dusty always had the best technically working heels. Arn Anderson, Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, the Midnight Express, and the most appealing, larger-than-life personality baby faces that the people would love and want to see kick these heels' asses. And the heels were such good workers, they were capable of getting their ass kicked in the proper way that it didn't kill them off. That was the formula. And that doesn't exist here because that element is not on the AEW roster. They do not have strong, iconic, main event level baby faces in great numbers. And the ones that they do run across every now and then, and I'm not even talking about CM Punk now, 
just the ones they do, they book in such a way that it either splits their appeal, diminishes their appeal, or questions their motives and to the point where they can't get to that status. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you this. If he came back and you can get him away from Camp Cucamonga, and if maybe in his time off he got into some better shape, what about Adam Cole? You know... Or has too much Adam, bad been done? Well, see, that's the thing. Adam Cole would have been at that... He was at that level when he first came to AEW in terms of level of interest. The fans were lit to see. And he had, was coming off of a run where everybody had praised everything he'd done. But now, I mean, even... I don't know, and obviously his concussion issue is is being treated seriously. I'm not trying to say he's seriously ill. I'm saying it's being treated seriously because they're not letting him wrestle. That's apparent visually. So, but even since he was in bad matches, his shit was kind of panned not only by us, but by a lot of people because of everybody he was involved with and the stupid angles and things. And and he didn't seem, I don't know whether there's an injury issue that caused him to lose size or ability to get in the gym, uh, but he just lost a lot of his aura that he came in with, both in the way that he was presented and in a lot of cases, the way he presented himself. And then, and he's been gone for so long, that's that's a rehab project in people's eyes. He, I don't... I mean, anybody that the people that the AEW fans like can come back in at a main event level and the and the base audience, who like I said, six, seven hundred thousand, whatever it is, they're going to cheer him no matter what. But for the people he might have brought with him from NXT that that you know have lost faith or WWE or just anybody else, you know, he they may be a rehab project at the end of it. And wait a minute, I, I just realized, I don't mean that without a him to drug rehab, I'm saying rehabilitate the image of Adam Cole, the wrestler on television. Let me finish with that one. So what do you do right now if you have a period of time where there are not going to be a lot of top-tier available free agents? There's nothing on the horizon, no game-changing main eventer that you could just hire. And it doesn't seem like anyone's close to being elevated to that stature right now, the way anything's being booked on that fucking show. What do you do? How do you develop? You need a sting. I mean, you really do need something like that for MJF right now. An 88 sting, I'm saying, not yeah. current sting. Well, at MJF and his promo already said, you're going to see me defend this very sparingly, and when I do, you're going to have to pay to see it. So at least they're headed in the right direction there in that the world title is going to be defended almost prominently on a big pay-per-view event and sparingly so that it doesn't become a commonplace thing, which is actually what it always traditionally was presented as the days of the territories because there was not a world champion. The world champion just didn't stay in one territory. He traveled, so it was a, a thing that you saw sparingly, and it became an attraction because of that. And even, you know, people can say, well, Bruno... Or the WWF champion, you saw them almost every month. You still didn't see the title defended every month. Sometimes they were in tags, sometimes in 
stipulation matches, but you never saw it on television ever in those days. And also it was Bruno in New York City, for fuck's sake, or wherever. Philadelphia, Boston, you get away with it. And I guess based on the early preliminary pay-per-view buys and other shows, I mean, him and CM Punk, it wasn't just CM Punk. It was the guy that's also been the guy moving the ratings since the very beginning. So obviously there's now a proven track record because that's been MJF's schedule wrestling sparingly since almost the beginning of AEW. There's some proof right there to the old school wrestling mentality to some, but the effective way to do pro wrestling to others. We don't need to see him wrestle every week. We need to hear him talk every week. And it can't be 30 seconds and it can't be throwaway and it has to make sense and it has to be something that you just need to tune into. Right. He's a guy, he can manipulate other people. He can say, you want a, a shot at my title? Well, hey, come here, fucking Hobbs. Look at here, Hobbs. Here's 10 grand. Fuck this guy up. If you can beat Hobbs, you get a title shot. He can be in there manipulating and stirring the pot, whatever. I've said in the past, I think for the first year, year and a half of the company, we should have seen MJF wrestle a bit more because he's good at it. If they were six-minute squash, not, not even squash matches, but just six-minute matches uh, where he could show what he could do, give the other guy a little offense and then get a decisive win with his finish, he should have had more of those. He's past that point, I think, at this time, obviously. He's world champion. But he doesn't. you don't want to see him every week, and you don't want to see everybody almost winning after 20 minutes taking him to the limit when you're never going to see the, that person in a pay-per-view main event. So, yeah, so, yes, that, and I mean, I think they almost, the fans, obviously, the AEW fans are supposed to resent MJF for when they say barely ever wrestles and Moxley says he never wrestles or whatever. Um, they're supposed to resent it, but I think some of the fucking marks in the locker room do also that this guy is good enough that he's able to get over to that level without going out and doing something every week. But, but again, this is the AEW world title, the company that we're talking about their world title, not the ring of honor world title. And because that is a, obviously a vanity angle for Jericho to get a major win on television every week, which is why he presented it to Tony. Uh, but that's why the Ring of Honor world title is being defended every week on television. It's not about getting the Ring of Honor world title over. It's about getting Jericho over. And, and anybody can get a Ring of Honor world title match. Well, beyond that, though, and I actually think Claudio is about to win it back. But no matter who the Ring of Honor champion is, does it hurt the AEW world champion to have another world champion on the same show? <sighs> Obviously... Yes, it would, except I think we're down to the point where anybody that's watching this show at this point already just knows. Just like, you know, it, they everybody's got a belt. I'm just going to watch for the main event stuff. If If this was attracting a large audience in terms of numbers of mainstream people, it'd be confusing as fuck. All right, well, that was the official word. Confusing as fuck. Confusing as fuck is the technical term. So let's stay on the topic of confusing and fuck in AEW. Jim, we've received several questions about Chris Jericho 
Not even about time displacement, but this is a previous topic. Here's an article from Wrestling Inc. by Dakota Cone. Chris Jericho has Olympic-sized plans for pro wrestling. (laughs) Professional wrestling has never been part of the Olympics due to its outcomes being predetermined. I don't know if that's the only reason. Is that the only reason? I, I, I don't know if that'd be the only reason or not. Cause if, well, if they already have, they already have wrestling. So if we're not going to work it, what the, what the fuck's the difference? However, some people believe that the scripted sport should in fact make its way into the Olympics with one of those people being the current ring of honor world champion, Chris Jericho. While on talk is Jericho, the Ocho explained why he would like pro wrestling to become an official Olympic sport. Quote, I literally want to go in front of the IOC, the International Olympic Community. <laughs> I think it's committee, not community, but anyway. Yes, yes, it is International Olympic Committee, but they live in a gated community. And pitch pro wrestling as an Olympic sport. Now you might go, how can you do that? It's all... Now, hold on. Stop right there. Gymnastic, pairs gymnastics, figure skating, pairs figure skating. What is that? I don't know what this is. It's two two people working together to put on the best performance possible. There is no way we could not do the same with pro wrestling. What are your thoughts? There's more here, but that's kind of the core of it. What are your thoughts on? It's just, well, it's a... Ludicrous over-the-top statement for a ludicrous over-the-top individual to get some uh, publicity on. Either that or he's, at this point, you know how much I love the, the uh, whether you want to call it an art form or a sport or whatever, how much I love the the concept of professional wrestling. But no, no, it, <laughs> for one thing, the International Olympic Committee and anybody affiliated with it would goddamn yes would fucking guffaw at the idea because when you think of it, the Olympics are for sports. And in any sport, even the gymnastics, people are trying to win, right? So if if there's a team gymnastics or a team event, all the people are on the same team. It's not people putting on performance, but part of the performance is that they are in conflict with each other. I mean, it's a headline-grabbing statement made by a headline-grabbing individual, but if you break down any of, the, any of the ways that it doesn't make any sense, yes, pro wrestling is a work. They already have wrestling, so why would they add more wrestling? Oh, you say, well, this isn't Olympic-style wrestling. This is professional wrestling. Well, again, then, okay, if it's a legitimate contest, then you could put it in the Olympics. Or if if professional wrestling was, again, two people on the same team representing the United States or whatever country against some team from another country, but then you can't grade it like gymnastics because that's not what it is. That's just what some people think it is. Do you get... You know, Les Thatcher to come in from Cincinnati and and two or three other wrestling training experts from around the world to come and judge a wrestling performance 
that is given totally, completely off the wall and out of context of the rest of the Olympic Games. So what is it? What is a ten then? Like you don't you don't see them call any spots. You know, like, well, and that's the thing. And then what is the judging criteria? Mine would be. How good can you make this match without ever showing obvious cooperation? And But there's never been a 10. There's never been a match you couldn't see through if you were looking close enough. But it's just, it's just ridiculous. And then the, the, the whole concept of a lot of the guys in the business now wanting people to grade the wrestlers on their performance instead of the stats they used to use back in the old days, which was how big was the house and how many people were there. Um, it's only because they know that the days have gone where they're ever going to draw a big crowd. So they want some type of positive feedback for their work from the small group of people that now watch it because they appreciate the art form rather than the large group of people that used to watch it because they want to see their favorite one win. So I, I, why don't Jericho take, uh, you know, bad lip syncing to the Olympics and try that one out? Well, he may win the gold for that, but perhaps this is all part of his time traveling that he's been doing lately. Maybe he's gone to the future and he's seen the way things are, but more than likely he just needs to lay down and have a good night's sleep. Well, more than likely he does. And I'll tell you what, I felt the same way. Oh, God. Several nights this past week with my my ailment and my predicament, but fortunately, at least when I was able to lay down, to lay my weary, flu-ridden body down on my mattress at night, except for every 20 minutes or so when I had to wheel my legs over the side of the bed and double up in the fetal position while I went into a coughing fit, I was as comfortable as I could possibly be under those circumstances because I was laying my decrepit body on one of my beautiful Helix sleep mattresses. And you can do the same thing, folks, with your flu and disease-ridden body on top of your beautiful Helix sleep mattress as soon as you get one. And we've talked about Helix in the past so many times. They've got 14 unique mattresses a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall people. Big is a synonym for fat ass, apparently. Not necessarily. You could be big and husky. Well, whether you're husky or just plain fat, (laughs) they've got one for you. They've even got a mattress for kids. It's such a cute little thing, and it comes with a lollipop. A lollipop is sticking right in there, and the kid just turns over and sucks on the built-in lollipop, goes right to sleep. There's no lollipop. There's no... Don't listen to any of this part. Wait a minute. You're, I know and no. I thought there was no nope. lollipop. There's no and no. And no it's lollipop. A, and it's a wonderful mattress, and we have several here in the house, and we love them, I'm, and the guests sleep on them here in the house. And let's talk about how comfortable and wonderful Helix Sleep Mattresses are. You have guests? We've had guests, yes. Do you give them lollipops? Well, uh, we do have some here in the house, actually. All right, well, would you like all a right, I guess you might have to have your own lollipop, folks. But nevertheless, <laughs> you go to helixsleep.com and you take the quiz. It's like a two-minute thing where they match you to the mattress they make that works best for you and your sleep preferences. 
How do you like to sleep on your back, on your side, face down in a stupor, whatever the case may be. And they, they've got mattresses that'll cool you up or heat you up or whatever the case may be. Boy, I wish I'd have had the cool down mattress when I was laying in a puddle of sweat, shivering like a street urchin in a Dickens novel the other night. But they, if I, you know, I may put, get one of these cool down mattresses. Just next time I get the flu, I'll have it in the, in the closet and I can just pop it out. But anyway, that's what you do. Take the quiz, get the mattress. They'll send it to you. You unbox it right in your own home. One person can carry it to where it needs to be. Even a person like me, I've done it before. And then you just poof, it just poof, it just comes to life. And they are not only great mattresses, they come with a 10 or 15 year warranty, depending out on the model, and you get to try it for 100 nights risk-free. We've talked about the risk factors involved in daily life many times on these spots, so just refer back to some of them. They're on YouTube. And if you don't love it, not only are they going to give you the refund, but they're going to pick it up for you too. So you got no, you got no risk here at all either way. There's no reason to feel like you're in danger when you enter into this transaction. That'll come later when the extortion begins. There's no extortion. You could stop it. There's no reason to believe you'll be in danger because you won't be in danger. You'll be in comfort. Yes, in comfortable danger with HelixSleep.com <laughs> no. right now. No. Right now. Helix is offering up to $200 off all of their mattress orders and two free pillows. If you go to helixsleep.com slash JCE, helixsleep.com slash JCE, up to $200 off all the mattresses and two free pillows. So right now, you can, you'll be sleeping good for the holidays. They got 12,000 five-star reviews. It's somewhat mandatory. The government of North Korea will make sure that you give them a five-star review. That's not how it works. They're not located in North Korea. They just contract the government of North Korea to enforce their no, social media nope. presence. They have nothing to do with the government in North Korea. We could stop so they, that. They've moved south. They're the good ones. All righty, folks. I, I don't even know what to say. Well... Just say it's been awarded Best Mattress Winner by Parents Magazine. If you want to become a parent, get one of these mattresses. Apparently, it does a world of good for your sex life because everybody that gets one of these things has 18 kids. You can't get out of it. Helixsleep.com. <laughs> can't get out of the spot. <laughs> Was that the end? Was that actually the end? I thought you were still going. That's the end. I'm good. All I'm right. Done. Well, Take it away. This has been the drive-thru, ladies and gentlemen. I guess we have more stuff. We have questions. I Let me thank everyone. There's so many condolences that it's hard to find questions in the drive-thru email. So that's very, very nice and also makes it very difficult to do my job. So thank you to everyone and also uh, cut it out. Jim, do you have any topics that you want to talk Topic, about? Well, you, did, did you hear that we, we tra I trended? I don't know what you did. I wasn't watching you this week, but I trended while I was... Actually, Wednesday afternoon, I believe it was, I got the antibiotics. I got my appetite back, so I'd quit pooping myself. At one point, it ran down my leg and did get on my sock. Um, but I, so I sat down to sign the autographed pictures and behind-the-curtain graphic novels and everything, because, of course, the merchandise sale is still ongoing 
at jimcornett.com. If you haven't ordered by now and you want it by Christmas domestically in the United States, please hurry. The next seven days or so, Max, we're going to be overwhelmed. If you get it in now, you can get it done. Uh, But I sat down signing some pictures, and I was sick as a dog. And, of course, I've I've told the feather bottoms they're going to wipe these things down with Lysol before they put them in the envelope. So if if they come to you and they're still a little a little strong, just hang them up on the line out in the backyard for a day or two. But anyway, I realized that then the following day that I was trending on Twitter while I was just sitting down in the TV room trying to wearily and through bloodshot and 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 watery eyes sign figure or sign uh, pictures. I trended on Twitter, and apparently nobody was even mad at me at that particular time. I think that may be a new one for me trending. Spotify did a thing where they they sent out, I guess, a year-end recap or a statistic or review of people's podcasts they listen to and how many minutes, I guess, or they, they can keep track of data like that. And people started tweeting from out there in the cold, so we want to thank you guys. They started treating, tweeting screenshots or treating screenshots, I don't know, of the the screenshot they had with how many minutes they listened to the experience or the drive-thru. I believe my program is leading yours by some margin, Brian. I've not seen evidence of that. Well, both of them were coming in at a high rate of speed, and that's apparently why we trended for a while there. But one guy, I mean, there was a lot of them, 10,000 minutes, 15,000, 20-something thousand minutes, and thank you guys. But one guy, who I think is apparently in fucking solitary somewhere at Rikers Island, had 68,000 minutes, I think it was. Something like, like 1,000 fucking hours. Or that would be, how many days would that be? Or how that would be a month. Would that be a month? I don't fucking know. I was waiting for you to do the math. Well, you're going to be waiting for a while. But nevertheless, we want to thank everybody for uh, sending out the, the information in hand. And there was a lot of compliments of how they liked our you know show and everything. So we appreciate that. But I'm, I'm going to ask right now publicly, if there's anybody out there that can top listening to one of our programs for more than 68,000 minutes, tweet that out or tweet your screenshot or whatever the people at Spotify, you know, Spotify don't know how to find me. I'm causing all this controversy and I don't know where Spotify is and they can't find me. But nevertheless, if you've, if you've had more than that uh, minutes with us, uh, tweet that out or get a hold of us. I might even send, send something out as a contest winner to the person who listened to us the most. But that's, that's amazing. That's what I got. Certainly is. Well, I'm on drugs. Let's get going with this show here. Well, wait a minute. Now, if Barry, remind me, you're not ill. You're just on drugs. I'm mourning. I'm in mourning. And uh, let's not let the listeners get too sad. Let's continue on here with the show. I haven't read through all of this, and I'm going to guess maybe you have or haven't, based on your crazy schedule, as we talked about earlier. have an article here from November 28th, Knox News. Golf cart scandal fallout reveals Knox County employees worked at Glenn Jacobs' house, the lawsuit says. Knox County employees worked at the home of Mayor Glenn Jacobs, who pressured one to lie. 
lawsuit says. Have you been following this story? No, I have no idea what's going on here. Okay, well, I guess I'll continue briefly. <laughs> Knox County Mayor Glenn Jacobs, that's the wrestler Kane, for those of you who don't know at home, asked county employees to work at his home while they were on the clock, pressured a department head to lie to state investigators, and cursed at him when he said he wouldn't do it. According to a federal lawsuit, the county settled by agreeing to pay $150,000 to former Parks and Recreation Director Paul White. Paul White. Not, not the big not show. The big show. Okay. Not the big show. He's not the big show. Deputy Law Directors Houston Havasey and David Wiggler denied any laws were broken in the response to the lawsuit that was settled last week. A county spokesperson told Knox News that work done at Jacob's house, removing a snake from the home, wasn't done on county time because the workers were on their lunch break. The <laughs> now, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> what a technicality that is. Hold on a second. <laughs> but wait. Hold. So, and again, I, I'm not looking for reasons to bend over and, and damn Glenn Jacobs nor praise him. I've never liked having a fucking damn him because he turned into a Trump sucker, but I always wanted to praise him because I always liked him otherwise. But in this case, what you've just told me is that somebody has filed a federal lawsuit at $150,000 settlement was paid out because the mayor of Knoxville had county employees remove a snake from his home on their lunch break? Well, no, I guess How does that, there has to be more to this story. Well, there's something more here. The 134-page document details a tumultuous period in late 2020 when Jacob's chief of staff, Brian Hare, was, <laughs> was accused of using a county golf cart at his home. This is so Knoxville. Hare resigned. Well, yeah, hey, I've lived there. I'm telling you. Hare resigned, but the fallout led to an investigation by the state of Tennessee. The suit lays out the internal efforts Jacobs and his aides made to hide the misconduct from reporters. Misconduct. The allegations include Jacobs encouraged White, the Parks and Recreation Director, to lie to state investigators about Hare's illegal personal use of county-owned golf cart. Of a county-owned golf cart, excuse me. Jacobs? A former WWE wrestler with an imposing build pounded a desk and cursed at White when he refused to lie to cover for hair after it was revealed he and his wife were using a county-owned golf cart that was delivered to their home. What the Everything about this fucking golf cart. <laughs> Hare eventually returned the golf cart to the county, but Hare planned to tell investigators he had given it up months earlier, White said. Hare pressured White to lie and say he had the golf cart for only a few weeks. White said Hare threatened to fire him if he didn't. So, again, how, how much does a golf cart cost? What? I, you know, this is perfect Knoxville. There's a bunch of hillbillies. I can say, well, somebody's mad at somebody else in the mayor's office. Well, old Ned, Ned's using that golf cart. 
You know that golf cart's supposed to be down at the city golf course. It ain't supposed to be in his backyard carrying his wife's big fat ass around. Well, now, wait a minute. I used to fuck Ned's wife, and his, her ass wasn't that fat, and you can't talk about like her like that. Well, I'll sue you. And besides that, you sent the county works department over on the on their lunch hour to take that snake out of Glenn's basement, so you're just a stooge for the mayor. I'm going to make trouble. I can see that Terry Landell should be involved in this, but thankfully he's fucking dead. So for, for those of you who've been asking if Jim knows that he's dead for the last several years, now you know. <laughs> <laughs> now I, had, I had people calling and singing songs to me about it. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's more here. I don't know how much more I want to read of this fucking article about the golf course. But wait a minute, what happened at that at, at Mayor Glenn's house with the county county works department? Was it at his house? Oh no, well, was it his house? Said, you know, well, the golf cart was at Mr. Harris' house. Yeah, see, there's a golf cart and there's there's work on county time. Ah. It's it's a, a cesspool of 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 crime and and corruption. County work on county time is the uh, subtitle here. The county hired Pew CPA, a local accounting firm, to investigate Harris' misuse of the golf cart after the county paid $3,700 for it, and it was delivered directly to Harris' home. They've hired (laughs) Harris' home? His home. His home. In English. Is Harris' home? They've hired an... And it, an independent CPA firm to investigate the whereabouts of a $3,700 golf cart. They're going to spend more for the CPA. Go ahead. The state comptroller began investigating soon after. <laughs> so two investigations. Where's this goddamn? How many times do you think metropolitan New York City loses a golf cart, Brian? Uh, metropolitan New York City? I don't know. Queens, probably quite a bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> All right. The investigation turned up more problems than the illegal golf cart use. The state uncovered work county employees did at Hare's home, as well as at the homes of White and of Hare's executive assistant. But the controller report didn't mention that Jacobs sent county employees to his home on June 22, 2020, to remove a snake that had crawled into a vent and was worrying his wife, Crystal. <laughs> who posted a photo of the snake to Facebook. I, I know Chris, Glenn met Crystal when he came there to wrestle. She's a local, was a local fan at the time. So I'm sure she, the snake was vexing her to no end. Harris said Pew CPA knew about the snake at Jacob's house, but considered it de minimis, meaning it was of little importance. Yeah, how much does it cost a county road crew to go take a snake out of an air vent? But still, if you're the mayor, you shouldn't be sending people over to the house to do that. It's one thing if they're there, oh, they happen to be here doing something else that they're supposed to be doing. Can you help me with this snake? I'm a woman. That's one thing. But no, this is Knoxville again. You're acting like this is a real town, Pinocchio. Um... I guarantee you, the, the mayor's wife calls me, Glenn, we got a snake in the air vent. And Glenn turns around and says, hey, Ned, can you get old Buford to go over there on his way past my house, coming back from his round taking garbage to the dump, 
or whatever the fuck, and have him wrangle that snake out of that vent. Everybody knows every. This is not like he's sending off road crews from a fucking uh, substation somewhere. Oh, good Lord. We have text messages. White kept his text messages, including them in the lawsuit. This exchange began at 10.37 a.m. Mayor Jacobs, I'll call you back. White, we were offering the help on the snake crystal posted about, or we can get you a varmint control person. Misspelling varmint. (laughs) Jacobs, thanks. I'm in a meeting. He then texted (laughs) his wife's phone number to White. Thanks, bud. If you wouldn't mind calling her. At 10.46 a.m. There you go. So Glenn didn't really want to deal with it at that point. At 10.46 a.m., Crystal Jacobs texted White a picture of a large snake on the side of their home. From Crystal, Paul, Glenn said to call you. I have a situation. This is Crystal. Paul, go to the lower driveway. White responded, on our way. Is that everything that ties them together i guess it could be that simple that, that that, there, there you go guilty as charged on our way and here comes the snake crew <sighs> well uh, that, that was that scandal i don't know whether that's actually gonna bump watergate out of the history books or not it, it sounds to me like that a bunch of these fucking people don't particularly like each other and they got the one guy with the golf cart who uh, the state probably legitimately does have a gripe with. Uh, he's probably poisoned the well, and everybody's trying to cover their own ass. And I bet you that fucking Glenn cussed this guy when he was pissing him off. And the guy said, Well, I'll just sue your ass. And there you go. <sighs> but it was an entertaining uh, moment of, you know, possible, you know, uh, political corruption and, and, turmoil in the mayor's office and it turned out to be just some fucking snake that's the way it always it always comes down to some fucking snake somewhere hiding in the woods okay and i was Ryan on, has died and i was on mute talking to myself i yes. am alive and i am here and we are here and you are there and let's move on with this show here this next one, Jim, was sent via email to CourtneyDriveThrough at gmail.com from Mark in Fairborn, Ohio. Hi, Jim and Brian. I grew up watching wrestling in the 80s and 90s and watching today's wrestling. Many moves seem to have just mostly vanished. The bear hug, the airplane spin, the Russian leg sweep, among other moves, are just gone for more flips and tope suicidas or whatever. Why do you think these moves and holds that lasted decades have just disappeared? Because the mark's gotten a ring. Um, in the case of a bear hug, why all the boys now a bear hug? Well, that's too boring. The guy, the 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 John the, Stud the, ruin it so that people can't see what it could be other than that. Well, no, it, that I mean, it's after that. Here's the thing when. The territories died, we lost a generation, and the indies started, and everybody could become a wrestler or a promoter, and then that generation that had been fans got in the ring. We've delineated all this in more detail before. But when that happened, guys got in the ring that were specifically becoming wrestlers because they wanted to do the fun moves. 
And the bear hug isn't fun for anybody. But the bear hug was a great, useful hold in wrestling to e either as a finish for a giant or as a a chance to grab your breath and get the people with you so that the baby face could have an opportunity to fight from underneath. And then you could, uh, part of the roller coaster ride. You could use it on the and, playground. Well, you could use it on the playground. Um, but, and of course, nobody even bothers. The guys now would not have any idea of how to use the bear hug properly. If it's a finish, it's for a guy like Rusev, who would clamp those big arms around the guy, smaller the guy's back. And he would be shaking him like a fucking rag doll, like a pit bull, shaking a little chihuahua around. Uh, and the guy would be screaming, and, uh, and he, then he'd give up because he couldn't take the pressure on his ribs anymore. The bear hug as a, as a transition situation where you've been working on the baby face's back, but you've got to let the people cool down for a second, and you're going to call your next fucking, you know, bit of business. You scoop the guy up in the bear hug, and now you've got him. And, and instead of his legs around your back so that he can hold on while he's being shook, that's when you put the fucking his shins on your thighs because you're going to have to have him up there for a minute or so. And that way he can help you <laughs> support the goddamn weight as you're working the hold in a grinding fashion and he's selling and he's trying to pry himself away from you and you can see the pain on his face to let the people start going come on come on come on and then he's trying to fight with a punch boom or another punch boom and he cinches it back up again oh my god and then maybe he finally thinks of the head clap or whatever and that causes the people to pop and the baby face is released. And now the heel has something to sell. So the baby face can try a Hail Mary from underneath. There's all different ways you can use that alone. He mentioned others, the Russian leg sweep. Great snazzy technical move for either a, you know, a baby face like Brad Armstrong or Stan Lane used to have such a beautiful leg sleep, leg sleep, leg sweep with a float over. And is, you know, again, easy for a green individual to take because you fall back. The guy does the rest. Uh, I say, you know, you almost never see a backdrop anymore, for God's sake. And it's because that once the fans got in the ring and determined to make it all about all the moves, these are common, simple things that you can do as transitions or as you know, just variety from the same bullshit we see constantly that have either been forgotten about or the guys now in the business, unless they go to the proper training facility, they don't even know how to apply or in what context to apply them or what the meaning of it is. You know, here's one thing that we used to teach in OVW that I had a lot of guys say they never, they never heard before in wrestling training. Nobody ever explained the drop down to them. See, they've gone past what's what's actually happening in the ring, and now they've just accepted it as this is the way wrestling is done. So they're calling shit. They don't even know why they're doing it. If you get a headlock on somebody, and they shoot you into the ropes, and they drop down in front of you, you jump over them, you hit the ropes, and come back, and you all do something. The guys just think that's part of the way it makes it look cool when you're running back and forth across the ring. No. 
the drop down is an evasive maneuver from the guy on defense. And nobody even explains that to guys in wrestling school anymore. And that's why they all look like just some fucking performed drop flat down with, you know, and the other guys just gracefully jumping over. But the fucking idea is this guy's cranking your headlock, cranking a headlock on you and your head hurts. So with what strength you can muster, you fucking throw him off into the ropes to get him off of you. And as he goes toward the ropes, you're still selling the headlock. So you're still really coming. You're on the defensive and you've just thrown the guy away. But the guy uses the momentum that you threw him with to go into those ropes and come back at you with a shoulder tackle or some strike or blow. So when you see him coming off the ropes, you drop down to evade that. And it's even a plus if you can drop down and trip him. So then when he goes over you, he falls and you can regain the advantage. But you drop down to evade. Then the guy jumps over you because he doesn't want to trip over you. But then as he's coming off the ropes on the other side, now you've had more time to recover from the headlock and from throwing the guy off of you. And conversely, he has just been flummoxed because he had to jump over a guy that he didn't know was going to drop down. So he's a little confused. So he might be easy prey for you to drop kick him or hip toss him and then you can take the offense guys now just call spots like well you leapfrog me and i'll drop down and you do this because it looks like cool motion they don't that's what i talk about when i say they don't understand how to keep the story and the appearance of and the element of a contest in the context of a athletic competition where guys are trying to outmaneuver each other even if if you're not a wrestling expert you're just a fan sitting there watching or on tv subliminally your brain understands when shit doesn't look like it makes visual sense and people are reacting in a way otherwise than you would think that they normally would so your brain at some level keeps up on it, even though you might not. And that's why sometimes things don't look right to people, even if they're not experts and can break it down. And I've already, I've broken that down. You know, it's interesting when I was a kid, a lot of those are kind of the basics of wrestling that you knew, like I said, on the playground, you knew the airplane spin. You may not know what wrestler did it even before you watched wrestling, but you knew the airplane spin, the bear hug. I wonder if those are commonly known today. Probably not, because I knew him because, you know, my dad knew him. Yeah, well, I th- a bear hug is kind of, I mean, pretty much you can kind of figure that out if you get in the situation to begin with. The airplane spin might be a bit more difficult, but, well, maybe that's why now you've got kids on the playground and instead of getting sent to the principal's office, they're getting sent to the goddamn emergency room because now they're trying to fucking do flips off fucking high objects through tables. Because hey, that's what they're seeing on television. Without doing the review of the match right now, but talking about band moves, what would you think of the pile drivers this week in Dax versus uh, Danielson? I, well, I, at the top of the program, I, even in my drug-addled stupor here, I, I remind you, I said I haven't seen it yet. Then I take it back. Yeah, but did, what did they, did they did they do them good? Did they do them bad, or did they do them indifferent? I haven't seen Dax do anything bad yet. <laughs> Everything it does looks great. But when you say pile drivers, were they just pile driving each other back and forth willy nilly? Or no, no, you know I'm saying pile drivers because I'm a little high, 
So I don't I don't remember if there was more than one pile driver, but I certainly remember Dax's big pile driver, but I don't want you to hold me to that. I don't want to hold you at all right now. Don't try to hug me. You might give me something. You might you might make me addicted to them marijuana pills. Well, I don't know about that, but what I may give you is a really wonderful chef-crafted meal. So that that'll well, help you feel better because it's fresh and it's delicious and it's chef-crafted. There you go. And it's not like that one I had on the island in St. Martin. It was more like Chef Crapped. No, this is Chef Crapted. Ladies and gentlemen, are you on the go? And I'm not talking about our opening subject. I'm talking about you got a busy life. You got a busy life. You don't have a lot of free time. And you're definitely getting ready around the holidays. It's all about ready-to-eat meal delivery. The folks at Factor shop it, they prep it, they cook it, and they deliver it to your door so that you can heat it up and eat it up. Like I said, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals. And boy, you ought to see her, Una, Una the dietitian. She's a very severe woman with dark hair and a bun in the back. Una? Una the dietitian. She approves all this shit. She tell you whether it's proper amount of calories and nutrients and condiments and experiments involved in this food and it's no hassle you know like i said you heat it up and eat it up 34 meals per week they've got gourmet plus keto calorie smart the vegan and the veggie they've got like three dozen weekly add-ons you've got all kinds of stuff to choose from and they even go with smoothies juices snacks all that stuff and they send it to you right in this little tray, and then once you eat it, you just toss the tray, and there you go. And if you need special occasion meals, Gourmet Plus is a perfect solution for fast upscale options. And now I say upscale, meaning, you know, with the ritzy-titsy crowd, I'm not saying this will make your scale go up. You're not going to gain weight. Well, if you eat about 15 of these a day, you probably will. Anything could happen. Nevertheless, you can change your order up every week. They've got plans from 4 to 18 meals a week. I don't know about you people who just eat 4 meals a week. I think you need more nutrition. But nevertheless, there's no prep and no mess. And they've also got Protein Plus and Keto. Protein Plus and Keto. They were the summer replacement for the Green Hornet and Kato. And right now, you can head to go.factor75.com slash JCE60. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, what the fuck is that? Is that the goddamn combination of Fort Knox? No, Fort Knox is much easier. Folks, write this down. Go.factor75.com slash JCE60. And use the code JCE60 to get 60% off your first box of Factor. If it wasn't such a big savings, I wouldn't ask you to go through all that fucking hassle. But. And it's delicious. And it's delicious, too. And you can feed yourself. As provided you have functioning arms, you're not confined to an iron lung somewhere, but you can feed yourself off this stuff if you're ambulatory. That is go.factor75.com slash JCE60 and use the code JCE60 to get 60% off your first box of Factor. 
I'm telling you, when you factor in the ease and the no must, no fuss aspect, well, this is going to be a wonderful way to get to Christmas without having to waste all your time cooking food and things. Of course, Jim, you get good meals from Factor, and let's see if we get some good questions from the listeners. This one was sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Sean. This is a follow-up. Thank you for answering my question on air, and I assure you, sirs, that Sean D. Brock is my given name. I think that one aspect that you overlooked, <laughs> this is following up on David Von Erich and Magnum TA, who had the bigger... Oh, oh, okay. Who would have been more influential, or who had the... Whose accident or overdose... Whose incident... Whose... Who's, God damn it. Let me... I'll just do this. <laughs> whose tragic incident... Yes. ...taking them out of the ring affected the wrestling business in a more impactful way was the topic that we discussed. I think that one aspect that you overlooked about David Von Erich living is that if Fritz had more pull, Crockett wouldn't have been able to monopolize the NWA world title like he did. David would certainly have had a longer run than Kerry did. Even having the belt for six months to a year would have affected all remaining NWA territories. Also. Fritz wouldn't have left the NWA when he did. David could have been a babyface in Texas and a heel everywhere else. I could even imagine a scenario where David is the one that drops the title to Magnum before going back to either Flair or Von Erich. Well, Thank you for your time. So here, more of Hold on, hold on now, cowboy, with a, b- b- that last scenario. Um, the time still doesn't work. When did David Von Erich die? What date? He died in, I think, what, January 1984. Okay. By the time, even if he had lived, by the time that he would have gotten the... the Kerry got the belt. February. Because, Let me just correct myself. February. Okay, February. Kerry got the belt, not because it was a normal switch that all the promoters still with pull in the NWA, even in 1984 would have had to vote it on and that type of thing. It was obvious. It was right. It was right because they drew 40,000 people to fucking Texas stadium. So even Crockett was not, you know, and imagine the goddamn who was getting the NWA booking fee in 1984. Um, the booking fee on that goddamn shot was pretty healthy but by the time if they had gone to plan and and pre-plan and vote on according to business and everybody's territory a title run for David Von Erich it wasn't it was always talked about as it's going to happen but it wasn't on the books for the year 1984 and time was running out by 1985 nobody was picking or voting on the NWA champion pretty much except for Jim Crockett. There were still NWA members, but, you know, he was already starting to do the Great American Bash tours, uh, uh, super shows where he went to Memphis and did co-promotions in Memphis and Lexington and went to Continental and did co-promotions in, what was it? Was there one in Birmingham? There's definitely one in Pensacola. Working with Watts, um, you know, it, 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 Fritz pulled out of the NWA because he had no choice. And it just, if it had been another three or four years, 
that's entirely possible. But for another 12 to 18 months, it still wasn't going to happen. So you don't think there would have been, because I'll tell you, if you watch world-class TV, mid to late 83 to the passing of David Von Erich in February 84, they're certainly building to him getting a title run. Now, again, I know this is the family's TV show. It's in Texas. You have to build these matches. But you don't think, if he had lived, is it as simple as he gets the title run that Kerry got, that he wins the title, they still book Texas Stadium, they still have this big show they've been building up for a few years now, Ric Flair dropping the belt to one of the brothers. Do you think it still happens in 84? It might. The show might have happened. The dropping of the belt probably wouldn't have. The As sad as it is to say, David dying drew that record house, and there was only one finish that could be done to draw that record house that wouldn't completely make everybody fucking seeing it hate wrestling. So they did it. But without David dying and the sentiment and the wave of grief and mourning in the newspapers and television stations and local news and the, I mean, you see the pictures from the papers at the time of the fans crying on the sidewalks. You know, it wasn't like today. This was important. So, Yes, they were a hot promotion, and in 1985, I was on, um, well, six months we were there, I was on a sellout at Reunion Arena. We were also at the the 4th of July event at Tarrant County Convention Center sold out. That was a almost $200,000 house, 12,000 people. They were still, the big shows were still doing business during that, that time frame, but they wouldn't have put 40,000 people in Texas stadium without that particular scenario coming to culmination in terms of David having a title run and anyone being able to work with any of the promoters being able to work with one another. This is the beginning of 1984. This is the beginning of Vince McMahon of them realizing the extent of what Vince McMahon's been doing for the last year and about to do more of promoters briefly work together better than maybe ever before. And and shorter than ever again. (laughs) And shorter than they ever would. Do you think there's anything there that lends itself to David Von Erich to help hold the alliance together? And you need world class. And before, again, if David doesn't die, it changes a lot of things and it changes the perception of world class. Yeah. Is there anything there? And he's still still David Von Erich in St. Louis and they didn't realize they were going to completely lose St. Louis yet. Well, but... (laughs) Unfortunately, then that changes things for the worse, because when you look at it that way, several of the territory promoters are uniting against Vince McMahon, Pro Wrestling USA, whatever the fuck that, you know, for however long it lasted. Okay, who do you want to put up against Vince McMahon's champion, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair or David Von Erich? That's not a knock on David Von Erich's talent. All the territory promoters were sold on him. But the persona that you want to put up against Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan and all this packaged, slick, you know, celebrity wrestling is a guy like Ric Flair. The guy that you wanted, the the David Von Erich as NWA champion you wanted for the 70s when he was going to be wrestling uh, as the world champion against a different hero or villain in a different territory every night and could switch styles and could 
it could be that when Harley race was the champion, most of his challengers, except maybe in St. Louis or whatever, were more flamboyant than he was. That was the, the idea. A lot of times, especially the local baby face, you wanted him to be more colorful, have a bigger personality, but the world champion just was the badass that could beat anybody. But he didn't overshadow the local star. When the world champion became the local star of the national territory, he had to have the over-the-top personality because now the dynamic has changed. You're not, you know, you're not bringing in a, a, rep, a reputed badass with a great track record to fight your star. You're making your world champion your star. So it just, it changed everything. David would have been perfect if the system he came up in had lasted another five to seven years. If he had his head together, do you think you hold up Kerry Von Erich against Hogan? Well, and that's another thing. If anybody was to uh, to pick uh, amongst a Von Erich, who do we counter-program Hulk Hogan with? It would have been Kerry. But Kerry, just, he, he, he was a... Again, he was a good worker to, for the way Kerry Von Erich should work, but he wasn't the the mental psychologist and the the subtle heel and the you know or switching to a you know a, a kick ass baby face or the different things that you would have needed to fill that role. He was a Greek god baby face all the way that you had you know, short to middle and long matches with and without exposing him, except Flair could get 40 minutes out of him because he got 40 minutes out of everybody. But you didn't want Kerry in there being the one to lead anybody for 30 or 40 minutes. That's pretty much not in dispute. You wanted Kerry to be in a condition where he'd listen. And most of the time he was in that shape until the... I mean, you know, it, it can't have helped Fritz's and World Class's relationship with the NWA and with Jim Crockett Promotions even before they pulled out of the NWA, even before all these other things happened. That time in Fort Worth, that was the one of the first nights we were there. What was that, New Year's Eve, 84? When Flair went back to Crockett and told him about his week-long journey of working with Kerry Von Erich that week, he probably never went to go back again. As a matter of fact, after that night, at the New Year's Eve match, that, I'm sorry for the younger listeners, Flair comes into Dallas for a week and a big main event in Fort Worth at Sam Houston, or not Sam Houston, but the, what was it, the Cowtown Coliseum or the Will Rogers Coliseum, that's what it was which was sold out for the only time I ever saw it there, $60,000 house, like six, 7,000 people, was Flair against Kerry for the NWA title. They were going to go an hour Broadway. And 15 minutes before the match, they can't find Kerry. And it's at the fairgrounds. He's out back behind the entrance where we went into the locker rooms in the arena in the cattle chutes. A lot of the guys parked in there because it was a cow barn and then they had cattle chutes and shit. And he was in his car nodding off, let's say. And they had to rush him to get his boots on and get him together and send him to the ring. And on the way to the ring, 
And the first, what, 10 minutes was on television. I watched it that following Saturday night. It was what they had to do was interrupt his Carrie's entrance for the announcer to say that Carrie Von Erich is wrestling tonight with a 103 degree fever against the advice of doctors because of the importance of this contest. And whatever planet Carrie was on was not in this solar system. And they just showed, like I said, the first few minutes of the match. Flair tried to hip toss Carrie, and Carrie's right foot never left the, the ring, the mat. He just went over sideways. And Flair has Carrie get him in a fucking hammer lock down on the mat. Carrie's going to do the handstand knee drop to the arm that's in the hammer lock and just did a handstand on Flair and fell all the way over the other way, flat of his back. And some other shit. And they went the hour. And thankfully, the last 52 minutes or whatever wasn't on television. But at the end of it, Flair stormed back in. I was still there. Flair stormed back in the fucking locker room. Ken Mantell, the booker, standing there. And Flair threw the fucking domed globe at him and said, here, you work with him the rest of the fucking week. So did they... Did Ric Flair go back and tell Jimmy Crockett, hey, I had a great time out there. I had to fucking work with a guy on a different fucking zip code than me, and he could have killed me at any point, dropped me on my head. And we must go back and do that more often. And there was still, Bob Geigel was president of the NWA. There was still an NWA office and infrastructure, but what are they going to say? They go, oh, well, you got to, Rick. Well, fuck you. Did any of the wrestlers there, because most wrestlers who worked there stayed there for a long time, did any of them there say anything about, did the boys partying, the, the brothers, did the Von Erich brothers partying increase after David died, or did it just stay the same? You know, I never asked anybody to quantify or give me the cutoff or the deadline or whatever. Because if it, we're talking hypotheticals and someone hears this and they go, well, Kerry wouldn't have been that messed up if David was alive. Is that a fair assessment? That, well, that probably did have something to do with it. And again, Kevin's the one, I don't think Kevin was a saint, but he never got any outside, you know, he didn't get in the papers. He didn't get, you know, arrested, whatever. But Kerry, it seems like that his problems started and got more, more public, more quickly, more prominently, more often from 84 on because again, 82, 83, Carrie was on the way up and everybody, Oh, look at this guy. And there, you know, the boys always had some of a, a reputation of, you know, doing what they were doing sometimes. But it it was it was stuff like you know Dallas was the only office I ever worked for that gave the boys the talent with their booking sheet written directions to the spot shows. I'd never seen that before. It's like you, here's the town you're supposed to be in and the time you're supposed to be there. Get there. And I asked I think Bronco Lubitsch or somebody one time. I said, well that's nice they give us directions. I've never but it's you know the little Xerox strip cut out or whatever. But Apparently is because the a lot of times the Von Erich boys, if they went to a town and they didn't go to the right school at first, they just assumed they went to the wrong place and just go back home. They wouldn't try to find the wrestling show. It was like they were given the 
directions to the guys who knew how to get to towns just to make sure that they didn't make the the only ones they're giving them to was the Von Erich boys. I don't know. But, but yeah, the problems, obviously, you know, with David's death and then Mike's situation, it seems like Carrie was the one that was affected more. To go to Magnum, if we go with the hypothesis that he's going to be the NWA champion, that it was predetermined, I shouldn't use that word, but it was predestined he was going to win the NWA title. First of all, when do you see that happening? Is it Starcade 86 or is it 87? Well, you know, people have asked that before, and I think 86 may have been quick. Um, people point to that, well, Nikita had just turned to take, you know, Magnum's place, and then he's in the main event with Flair at Starcade, but that was a, a pre-existing kind of situation where they had been when Flair was still a babyface to Carolinas, the main event of the first Great American Bash at Charlotte Memorial Stadium in 85 was Flair and Nikita. So it was something that you could have gone back to at any point, and now it's just a different a different outlook because Flair's the heel and Nikita's the babyface. So I don't know if it would have been that that fast, and that was right after six weeks after the accident anyway, but I think by... By 87, it would have probably happened because I don't know if Dusty would have sat on that, you know, all the way till 88. And then, you know, it, it obviously wouldn't have happened because TBS became involved. So we're talking about what impact their tragic incidents had on future events. If Magnum TA stays healthy and wins the NWA world title and whatever happens, happens, what happens to Sting? You know, that's a good uh, question also because Sting did not even arrive in the company until six months after Magnum's accident. If he had arrived in the company and Flair had still had Magnum to work with and Barry Windham was in at that point, and maybe Barry Windham wouldn't have been in probably if Magnum hadn't had his accident. But Sting would have been... Flair would have always liked him, liked what he saw and wanted to work with Sting and wanted to, you know, have a program with him or whatever. I don't know if Flair would have seen the need to make a new baby face, you know, like that uh, as as quickly as he did in one night at the first Clash of Champions. Well, that's the question, I guess. Would there have even been that need for a top babyface at that point that you had to do that at the big event, which was run against WrestleMania? Well, there's always a need for a top babyface, but it might not have been that pressing where it happened that night. And and maybe, you know, if it hadn't happened that night and, and there was still Magnum was still around or Barry Windham came back, maybe Sting would have been a little overshadowed. I have no idea, but... um. You know, I think that's that's probably a thing that Sting would have been. He was still would have gotten over with people. He still was staying and he still had the things that they liked, but it probably would have delayed him or possibly blunted, taken the the effect off the, you know, star making performance at the clash. Because really, that was the people were ready to like him. And Flair just had him do everything he knew how to do three times, including beat his chest. But they they were ready to buy it. But would Dusty have gone with him? Um, probably because, you know, I mean, he wouldn't have gone with Sting over Magnum TA. 
nor should he have at that point because Sting was much greener and unproven. But he still would have pushed a guy like Sting. You know, no doubt about it. Well, well, no doubt about it. But if you had some doubt or perhaps you wanted to make a prediction about what Dusty would have done with Sting and perhaps there was something called prize picks in 1988, you'd be able to do that. You couldn't then unless you have Chris Jericho's time machine, but you can now even without it. Prize picks, Jim. Good Lord, If even if I wasn't confused and brain foggy, I would be after that. Well, folks, of course, prize picks are our daily fantasy friends. They have fantasies every day that you can jump in on. And you don't even need to bring your own toys and equipment. They've got the whole room set up right there. You just go to prizepicks.com and you make entries based on player projections. And you select more or less, meaning is Jim Cornette going to shit himself three times on Monday, more or less? And if you pick right, well, then you don't get shit on, you get money. And right now, apparently, I think they've increased this thing because right now, if you go to prizepicks.com and you pick two to six players, pick your projections, make your, your thoughts known, you can win up to 25 times your money. Has that ever been that big before? That many multiples of your money? I don't know. That's pretty big. That's pretty darn big. Well, it's so big, it ought to be. Well, nevertheless. Nevertheless. You can, nevertheless, you can not fight other people, but the projections. It's you versus those damn projections. And on any sport. And you know what, folks? I usually read it off, but I don't have the win this week. So just start with NFL, end up with cricket, and know that disc golf is in the middle. Any professional sport, down to cockfighting and ball licking that you could possibly No, not those. Of. Not those. And I don't that's, know if those who qualify as sports, but yes, disc golf. That's right. And, and also, ball licking has not been made professional yet. That's still in the amateur realm. And you can make entries in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. And make safe and fast withdrawals. You don't even need to pull a sidearm. They're currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. And right now, folks, download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play the daily fantasy sports. First time users, which might include some of you out there, can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100. With the promo code JCE, that means you put in 100, they'll give you 100. You put in 50, they'll give you 50. You put in nothing, they'll blackball you forever in your neighborhood. Don't forget to enter promo code JCE at the sign-up for an instant deposit match up to $100. Win up to 25 times your money. Show off how smart you are. You know, there's a lot of real smart asses out there, Brian. You know the definition of a smart ass? What's that? That's somebody can sit down on an ice cream cone and tell you what flavor it is. Prizepicks.com. All right. Well, let's try to find a way to fill up the rest of this program here today. Oh, really? Well, I thought we already had 10 pounds of shit in this five-pound bag, but go ahead. Well, we've got more shit in this bag and more bags, and I don't even know what the hell we're talking about. Jim, you brought up Dallas before. I got a few programs here I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, wait a minute. Are you talking about... Our old game, Guess the Program? Not necessarily. Actually, two of these here are not Guess the Program. I want to tell you what they are because they're fascinating. I thought Okay, well, you just want to brag about them. I have other ones you could try to guess. We'll see how good you are. 
Okay, you know what? Fuck it. We'll start with the guessing. We'll see. All right, we'll just we'll, we'll just fuck see you. How I'll the guessing is all right. Fuck you. I'll I'll answer then. I'll goddamn figure it out. Hold. I've got paper here. That's good. All I right. Got, I got paper here. All right, Jim. Here's the card. The opener. One fall. Baron Gatoni versus Timothy Gahey. Gio Hagen. Gia Hagen. Okay. Brother Frank Jairs and Babe Zaharias versus Paul DeGaulle and Dynamite Lay. (laughs) (laughs) Is that... Is that, and by the way, that's L-E-I-G-H, right? No, it says L-A-Y, Dynamite Lay. Oh, wait, you know what? No, is was that, a, uh, was that a nickname for Charlie Lay? Hold on, let me take a look. Let me... Remember Mid-South, Mid-South uh, Commissioner Charlie Lay at one point? Who never left Florida, hold Who on. Who never left Florida. I'm looking here inside here, Paul DeGaulle. Uh... I can't say that because it'll reveal who this is or where this card is. It does not say. It is not stipulated anywhere. It may be Charlie Light. All right. And by by the way, Babe Zaharias apparently was a, and goddamn, I read the the research on this, but it's a complicated situation. But Babe Zaharias was not George Zaharias, nor his brother Chris Zaharias, but was a a uh, wrestling manufactured Zaharias brother. I can't remember who it, it was a well-known name, but I can't remember who now, but go ahead. And finally, the main event, two out of three falls, 60 minute time limit, Wild Red Berry versus Chris Tolis. And next week, the Canadian Bear. God damn it. We are, we are in the early 1950s, early to mid, we are, I don't, I, 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 what part of the country am I trying to say? I don't think we're in the Midwest like Chicago. I think we're out Kansas, Missouri, Iowa way. Um, sh- or can, did I say Kansas? We're not in Kansas. Or Iowa. It's the Kansas City, Iowa way, I believe you said. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, God damn it. Uh, I don't think anything's going to come. I'm going to say 1954, somewhere in Kansas or Missouri. The date? Friday, May 11th, 1956. Shit. The town? Knoxville, Tennessee. No! Yes! Holy shit! I would have never thought... You know, and okay, Frank Jairs was in the Tennessee Territory in the mid-50s when he wrote, or when his son later on, you know, wrote about it in... Whatever Happened to Gorgeous George. Whatever Happened to Gorgeous George, but I wouldn't have put Redberry and Chris Tolos on top in Knoxville in 1954. So, you got me there, pal. All right, let's go to this next program. Some interesting copy here, but let's just go to the card. The opening bout, 30 minutes, one fall. Dick Beyer, 225, Buffalo, New York, versus Joe Scarpa, 230, Jersey City, New Jersey. The second bout... By way of Paul Huska, Oklahoma. The second bout, being a special added attraction, 
for the Colored Ladies World Wrestling Championship, Babs Wingo versus Ethel Johnson. They were sisters, obviously. That story has been told recently. The semifinal match, Tor Yamada versus Johnny Rodsek. And How do you spell that? How do you spell that? R-O-D-C-E-K. Never heard of him. Yeah, yeah. it could be Rod Check. Uh, before the, well, I guess I should say this after the main event. The main event, two out of three falls, one hour time limit. Chief Little Eagle, 222 out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, versus the Red Terror, 245, parts unknown. While Bill Longson is pretty sore because he didn't get the championship match with Hutton, He's just dying to get another shot at that title. Anyway, he's challenged... It says that. Anyway, he's challenged the Red Terror, using it as a stepping stone to the title match. He intends to unmask the Terror with his famous pile-driving hold. But Little Eagle, that's in the future. Yes. Little Eagle is wrestling Red Terror tonight. That's right. And... Obviously, he just said Champion Hutton, so we're in either 1957 or 58, right? That is correct. Okay. And we're down south, I think. I think that because Scarpa worked a lot in the south in his, early in his career. Tori Yamada was the Japanese heel in the Tennessee Territory before Tojo Yamamoto. Buyer worked before he became the destroyer in the timeline fits. Buyer worked down south. Colored ladies is another clue. Um, the question is: is this is this a Birmingham? Is this probably wouldn't be Chattanooga, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, potentially somewhere in West Tennessee. Ah, Birmingham, 1957. The date, Tuesday, April 22nd, 1958. Ah, okay. Louisville, Kentucky. Love what? Ha, 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 you prick. <laughs> you prick. All right, this was in the dark days of the Goldenrod Athletic Club when Wee Willie Davis That's right. had tried to take over running the town upon the death of Francis McDonough, the prior promoter. And no wonder these cards didn't fucking draw. Good Lord. Coming All soon, right. coming soon, Jackie and Don Fargo. Wow, now that, but you know what? April 58. I've got to get with, um, i got to get with Cosper and see if he is, because he researched the Allen Athletic Club in Francis McDonough's years. I don't know if he's done Wee Willie Davis's yet. We were not certain that the Fargos ever appeared in Louisville during the their 50s run because that was not, Louisville was not controlled by the Nashville booking office at that point. So that'd be interesting. And again, coming soon doesn't necessarily mean they actually showed up or. Well, no, there was a lot of coming soons that never came at all, especially when they went out with me. All right, well, let me uh, go to this next one here. (laughs) All right, here's the card. This is a giveaway. This is easy. I'll give you an easy one. Why, apparently I need it. The opening bout George Becker versus Pat O'Brien. The second preliminary bout Lenny Montana 
versus Anton Leone. The semifinal match, a tag team match, Don McClarity and Pedro Morales versus, versus Laverne Baxter and Gypsy Joe. Oof. And the main event, and this will be a little bit of a giveaway, for the World Heavyweight Championship, Buddy Rogers defends against Rip Hawk. Oof. I believe we are in Evansville, Indiana, are we not? We are not, thankfully. What? Who wants to be there? Well, God damn it! Now you've thrown me off. Um, because I've just been reading those uh, excellent Evansville history books from Sean Delaney, and they actually did have Rogers defend the title against Rip Hawk when Rip Hawk was the top star in Evansville back in 1959. Um... Well, then this is odd. Okay, George Becker obviously started out in the probably late 30s and was the booker for Jim Crockett Promotions when Jim Crockett Sr. ran the territory. And up until the uh, changeover to George Scott, etc., and Becker and Weaver were the top babyface tag team. Pat O'Brien, I have learned that Pat Malone, the Green Shadow, actually worked a lot of his career as Pat O'Brien. Um, Pedro Morales with Don McClarity is odd. McClarity's known as a top guy in the Atlanta territory. Pedro would have to have been a rookie or nearly thereabouts. Laverne Baxter and Gypsy Joe is a goddamn great combination. We've got to be in 19... Obviously, 60... Two, uh, 61 or 62, with Rogers defending the title, by 63, he was pretty much tied up with Vincent about to drop it. Uh, and this, this has to be in the South somewhere. Or potentially, the it's... If it's not Evansville, boy, boy, Laverne Baxter was a top guy a lot of times in the Gulf Coast area, but this doesn't seem like it would be that. Where the fuck would Pedro Morales have popped up in this band of Merry Misfits? Uh, 1961 in the Carolina Territory. The date? October 23rd, a Monday, 1961. Charlotte's Park Center. Boom! There you go. The Carolina Territory pretty much encompasses Charlotte Park Center. Uh, so I'll, I'll take that as a moral victory. Coming next week, Pat O'Connor, former world's heavyweight champion and now holder of the United States title, will appear in Charlotte next week. And you see that little tidbit, Pedro Morales in Charlotte. If you would have said, would Pedro Morales have worked in Charlotte in 1961? You'd get the same answer as when we said, would, did Antonio Inoki work in Kingsport, Tennessee in 1965? I thought Rip And the Hawk, answer is yes, he did. I thought Rip Hawk was actually going to be the giveaway to you. Well, see, yeah, it threw me off bad because at that point in time, I have just been reading these books, and Rip Hawk was came in and, and started doing the Evansville 
Indiana local TV studio show and became the top star in the in the town to the point where he even actually moved there and and bought a house and you know that whole thing and I'm thinking where would at that point in time where would Rip Hawk have been in contention for the NWA World Title because yes Rip Hawk and Swede Hansen were a legendary tag team in Charlotte but that came along afterwards and you know it's it's odd the 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 crew that they used in the 50s and early 60s in Charlotte is it it had a completely different flavor than what you would think as the modern Charlotte stars Tojo Yamamoto as PY Chung got not only got an NWA world title match against Buddy Rogers and I would have loved to have seen that son of a bitch but he was so hot as a heel in Charlotte Tojo that was the main event of a fucking ballpark show outdoors in the summertime. And if, but if you had said in 1975 in Louisville, Kentucky to any smart fan, even Weasel Dooley, do you think Tojo ever got a shot at Buddy Rogers for the NWA title? You looked at that person like their fucking heads were on fire. So you never know about these things. Jim, our next one, the opening bout. I assume it's the opening bat. It must be a special rematch. Wild Red Berry versus Tommy Phelps. Okay. The semifinal. Bob Geigel versus Bulldog Pletchus. Danny Bulldog Pletchus to you. It only says Bulldog here. I'm going based on what says what it says actually right <laughs> here. And the main event for a tag title I will not name. The Fabulous Kangaroos, the champions, Roy Heffernan and Al Costello versus Juan Garcia and Sonny Myers. Well, um, we are in, now we're in Kansas. Either that or Missouri. Um, you know what? I'm going to, just to make this interesting, tell you you're wrong on both. And you probably, what? I know why you think you, it would be there, but it's not. Well, God damn it. All right. Well, Geigel didn't just wrestle there for, for his entire life, and, and Wild Red Berry was a big big name all over the place. Um, Sonny Myers sort of homesteaded the Central States Territory. If it's Costello and Heffernan, it has to be, what, pre-1965? And now you've you've got me completely out of my train of thought, and the drugs are kicking in also. I'll give you another clue, just because I'm big on clues this week. Okay. The headline story in this program, Lou Thez here next Monday night, rematch, Bulldog versus Thez. Again, a title I'm not going to name is once again at stake, the winner to meet the world champion, Pat O'Connor. Aha! All right, and then in that case, we're looking at 1959 or 1960. Are you trying to throw or run by another ringer in here? This is going to be some one of my favorite towns in the world in some fashion. No, I've never actually heard you talk about this town. I don't know if you've ever been there. You must have, but I've never heard you talk about it. Where the fuck would they have been then? Um, 
I have I I have no idea. I know it's either 1959 or 1960. I would think I have no idea the location of where this would be. Monday night, February 16th, 1959, the Civic Auditorium, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Jesus Christ! I'll tell you what. I I never went to Albuquerque often. But I was in Albuquerque twice, and one time I was in Albuquerque, I was in three different people. So it's a memorable place, but uh, I would have never guessed Sonny Myers and, what, Juan Garcia, uh, the interpreter for fucking Juan Valdez against the kangaroos in Albuquerque. And what was the date? The date was February 16th, 1959. Here's from the headline about Thez coming back. The five times former world heavyweight wrestling champion, Lou Thez, who was also the seventh state regional title holder here last Monday night for a mere 20 minutes, will be back next week and once again take on Bulldog Pletchis with the same silver and gold Rocky Mountain title belt at stake. Well, there you go. So he was the champion for 20 minutes. Oh, they probably pulled some kind of goddamn... It's like raw. Uh, reverse decision or whatever, <laughs> you know. All right, one more that uh, I'll quiz you with, and then I'll hit you with a few interesting ones. The opening bout, Tony Belagian versus Johnny Svensky. Second bout, Jerry Mace of Ireland versus Johnny Berend, Rochester, New York. The semifinal, Johnny Rougeau out of Montreal, 235 pounds, versus Aldo Bogny, South America, 248 pounds, one fall, 30-minute time limit. And the main event, Australian tag team match, referee Bearcat Wright, mm. Ivan and Carol Kalmakoff, versus Fritz von Erich and Carl von Schober, Russians versus Germans. Fritz and von Schober. That sounds like. Could it be the Midwest? Could it be the. Could it be an upstate New York area type of thing? I don't. It also could very well be straight into the capital sports territory of the. Late 50s, early 60s. Um, if I name the promoter or the matchmaker, you'll get it right away. Well, and that kind of would spoil it, wouldn't it? But but otherwise, there are... Who's the matchmaker? I'll give you the promoter. The matchmaker... I think the matchmaker is okay. an even bigger giveaway, although to you, okay, you'll get it either way. Promoter. Dennis Stecker. Okay, well, wait a minute now. Then we're talking about the the Midwest and the AWA territory, what would become the AWA territory. That is correct. But then at that period of time, had it become the AWA yet? I guess you're taking that as a rhetorical question. I, I, you know what? I'll just give it to you uh, <laughs> what? No, rhetorically. You it had not become the AWA yet. Uh, so we're looking at, what would this be, 1957 Minneapolis? January 8th, 1957, Tuesday, Minneapolis Auditorium. 
Boom. There you go. All right. How about that? The Russians versus the Germans in 57 with Bearcat Wright as the referee. You know, that is, well, but Minnesota was never the seat of strife in the civil rights world or the seat of the, you know, communist blacklist. So you got, you got Nazis, you got Russians, and you got African-Americans living in harmony, beating the fuck out of each other. I'll give you this card. This may be a tough one, but the story is actually what's on the cover here. The opening match. One fall, 30-minute time limit. Benny Trudell versus Ray Stevens. Two out of three fall, one-hour time limit match. Miss M. Young versus Miss P. Hoffman. And the main event, two out of three falls, returned by public demand, no time limit, winner take all. Chris Saharius versus Junior Mr. America, Harry Smith. Good Lord. Uh, Chris Zaharius actually was George Zaharius's brother, right? He had a real brother, just not Babe. Harry Smith uh, is not that old, the one I'm thinking of. M. Young and P. Hoffman. I got no, and I mean, Ray Stevens, this has to be He's a rookie, so what, 1953, four, maybe two? Um, are we somewhere in Ohio we or West not. Virginia? We are not. Where did he go? Where did he go? Um, are we out west again? We are not. Are we tired of me guessing hopelessly? Where is this fucking thing? The promoter, Cowboy Latrell, the announcer, Gordon Soley, the physician. Florida. We're in Florida. We're in Tampa, October 15th, Monday, 1956. The headline on the front page of the program, grudge match on tap this Monday night at Auditorium, October 15th. Watch for your live TV wrestling starting Wednesday, noon. On WFLA, October 17th. Wow. Starting. Starting at, um, at noon. You know, and we were talking about this when we talked about the research I'd done on the Graham brothers and for one of the vice shoots here recently. Florida, before Eddie Graham, was not neither a big money territory nor was it a place where wrestling drew huge crowds because Florida was pre- amusement parks and development and et cetera. Florida was a, you know, sleepy Southern state. It wasn't, except for Miami Beach, where the gangsters started going early, it wasn't a goddamn scene of a lot of hubbub. And Tampa, Florida, you go through the old 50s results and, you know, the newspaper records, attendances, a big wrestling crowd in Tampa was 1,500 people back in those days. And with a card like that, you can probably see why. And Cowboy Luttrell had run it for years and years and years. But Eddie Graham had been there a couple times. He'd been there as a rookie, you know, down from Chattanooga, just in the opening matches. And then he had been there right before he got that run in Amarillo with Dory Funk Sr. And he obviously saw, you know, th there's opportunity here. A guy that understood the wrestling business 
could come down here and get over as the top guy and be able to buy in. And I've got to hook up with Vince McMahon, who may have my, my gimmick brother, Dr. Jerry, may have been Vince's favorite wrestler when he was a kid. Vince Jr.'s favorite wrestler, but Vince Sr. probably put more faith and stock in Eddie Graham than he did in Jerry. So, you know, I think that's why Eddie Graham went there when he could have his pick of going anywhere after he'd just come off of selling out Madison Square Garden because he didn't want to just be one of the boys and bounce around. He wanted to be a, a top guy, take over a territory, become an owner, et cetera, et cetera. But boy, what a all-star card there. Tampa, Florida. Listen to a couple of the things in the program here. Around the ringside, all of us on the promotional end of wrestling hope that you will thoroughly enjoy the coming season. We feel that at times you will be happy with the outcome of the matches, and that at other times you will be unhappy. <laughs> you may even find fault with the officials. But wrestling is not alone confined to fans criticizing officials. The basketball, baseball, football, and boxing fans hate officials, especially if their favorites are beaten. When you attend wrestling matches or any other sports event, enjoy yourself and relax. If you do that, the money you will spend for the entertainment will be worthwhile. And after all, all sports are produced for your entertainment. Surely, the outcome of world problems are not involved. Relax, and you will enjoy long life. <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> Apparently, Cowboy Luttrell or somebody in his office waxing poetic and philosophically. And also, they probably had a lot of heat on the referees because they've been doing a lot of fuck finishes. The next time a critic cracks a lung abusing the ancient sport of wrestling, you could do him a favor. Buy him a ringside ticket, and we will bet he'll come back for more helpings. Why? Because the mat game is as colorful as a hurricane-stuck paint shop, as versatile as a jack-of-all-trades, as fresh as the present second of time, and as infinite as eternity. It is the scent of blood, sweat, and liniment. <laughs> its trademarks are toil, tears, and pain, softened by touches of laughter and applause. Smoothed by human nature and humor. This has been AEW Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is that? And we promise not one unpleased face will be left. Hey, one quick okay. thing before we move off this program and uh, on with the show. The TV's debuting. It's not even that it's debuting at noon. It's debuting Wednesday at noon. What are your thoughts on... You know, again, this is 1956, Tampa, Florida. That's the time spot that wrestling's getting. Uh, that's a little perplexing and puzzling. But, again, I think there may be more to that story. Now, also, if you want to Google real quick, I know this is your show, but when did that television station come on the air in, uh, in Tampa, Florida? WFLA. It's one of the longstanding stations, but was it a brand new station? Or could it have been that they flummoxed up and that's when they taped the program? Because didn't they always in Florida tape the TV wrestling show on a a weekday or a prior day for rebroadcast, even when they were doing it from their own building? 
WFLA went on the air February 14th, 1955. Again, this program is October 15th, 56. And on the back here, I have Notice Wrestling Fans. Don't forget to tune your TV set to WFLA Channel 8, Wednesday at 12 noon. Okay. When, for the first time in wrestling history, live matches will be shown in Florida. Free tickets may be had by writing WFLA TV Wrestling and enclosing a stamped addressed envelope. Okay, that is bizarre. And I don't I don't think it lasted long. Maybe it was a brand new station. They said they'd been on the air for a year. That's when You know what? They may have not had videotape capability. They may have, you know, if you want to do a show in our studio, it's got to be live because that was the case with some local television stations back in the 50s that did not have the ability to record and rebroadcast. So maybe that's the time they had. I, it, like I said, it, it probably didn't last that that long, but uh, I don't remember another, even 1950s, wrestling television program being on a, a regular slot on a weekday during the day. With live matches. But but live or tapey, well, on ta- I mean, you got in the modern era when you had afternoon programming blocks and of things, and W World Class was on ESPN, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but just a local TV program with the local promotion being on a weekday between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., I don't remember that ever. 1956, you're a wrestling promoter. You take that because you know as soon as you get on that TV it's going to become probably the one show on that network that gets the biggest reaction. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and also if they'd never had television before, they obviously wanted to get in on it, but uh, the prospects were slim because there weren't that many stations and opportunities. So they took what they could get. But then obviously with the, what, you know, 30 years after that relationship that Florida had with television wrestling, it worked pretty quick and they started switching it to weekends where it could, you know, gain a bigger viewership. Well, Jim, perhaps you were a fan in Florida and you were alarmed middle of the day. You're looking for chatty patty or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden here, chatty patty here is wrestling. Maybe you want to sue if you're Chris Jericho and you have a time machine. I guess we'll just go with that. You know what? I'll make up my own. Let's say, for example, you've got a co-host that swore that he'd help you get through your brain fog and help you lead you <laughs> through the show and blow the music cues to the whole nine yards. <laughs> and he he reneges on this and he just gives you transitions into spots that are flatter than a plate full of piss. What are you going to do? What? Who are you going to call? How are you going to get even? Steven P. News. If you need to an outlaw mud show or two. Still to the rest. Folks, what are you going to do? You're at the end of your rope or the end of your leash or the end of your tether or the end of your harness or the end of your strap-on, whatever it may be. 
and you're dizzy and you're tired and you're downtrodden and you're worn out and you're the poor and the pitiful. Give us your tired, your poor, you're a huddled mass. And somebody's messing with you, whether you've been wrongfully terminated, whether you've been injured in an accident due to someone else's negligence or impropriety, whether some major corporation or greedy monopoly has poisoned your atmosphere, or whether you yourself or members of your family have been mistreated by folks that ought to know better than to do that kind of treating, the man, the myth, the legend, our friend, our neighbor, our consigliere at the Cult of Cornette, Stephen P. New, at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084, is the man for you. If this was earlier in the program or I had an oxygen tank next to me, I would wax rhapsodic at length on the many attributes that Stephen P. New has that makes him and his team at newlawoffice.com the perfect counsel for you, no matter what your, your sojourn that you are about to take into the American legal system is, they can handle it. What they can't handle, they can find somebody to give you a hand with because they know everything. And it's all available at your fingertips. Just punch in the number 888-692-8084 or go to log on, as the kids say, newlawoffice.com. And they have, there's many various listings of all the types of cases that they have helped people and continue to help people with. And we'll do the same for you. And they, a, a complete explanation of their charitable uh, organization or charitable efforts with different organizations in West Virginia and around the country and all the variety of public service and, and benefit to the community that Stephen and his minions do to keep things running properly and right and give people opportunities. I, you know, they ought to, you ought to play some patriotic music behind me, Brian, like Oliver Wendell Douglas on green acres. As I say, that's all that Stephen wants to do is make a better society. Give people the ability to pull themselves up by their own jock straps and grab the bull by the tail and face the situation. So if you're one of those people that wants to stick your face right up next to that bull, then you call Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. Jim, I have two programs here. You have an echo, is what you have. I have two programs here, Jim. From Dallas, Texas, we have time for one to talk about. Yes, well, let's, let's do that then before, before before I regurgitate. Do you want to hear about the beginning of the Dallas Wrestling War or the end of the Dallas Wrestling War? Let's start at the beginning and then bring the end to the experience. Because, you know, I have a few of those in the middle there. This is a program, Dallas Wrestling at Pappy Showland, where you see the wrestlers of proven ability. Volume 1, number 19, Tuesday, May 19th, 1953, Dallas, Texas. The price, 10 cents. Dallas fans, here's the truth. Read this article by prominent sports writer Frank Godso. Reprinted in full from the sports pages of the Houston Press, Wednesday, May 13th. Muscle Market by Frank Godso. Its fate may never jeopardize the nation's economy but the life of professional wrestling in Texas hangs in the balance. 
it's not only a big sports business, but an industry which last year grossed $1,708,099 in our state. Wow. A war of serious consequences. Now, wait a minute. This is 1952. 53. So, May 19, Well, no, but they said last year. Oh, that's right. Last year. So, do the, your own inflation calculating. I won't delay Brian, but I know for a fact, just off the top of my head from doing these things, that when you get back to the early 50s, you're looking at uh, current value being 10 times that amount or thereabouts, close in the neighborhood. So you're talking about $17 million in today's money being grossed in, are they talking about the state of Texas? It said uh, last year in the state of Texas. Yeah, in our state. Bam! A war of serious consequences rages at the moment, is increasing in intensity with no solution in sight, and has since December. There doesn't now exist a monopoly in its control, and one never has existed. That's in bold. The biggest man in this business has, for three decades, been the Houston promoter Morris Siegel. In addition to his Houston concession, Morris has the Texas Wrestling Agency, a firm which performs a booking service for the wrestlers and promoters in the state's largest cities, one of three such agencies which have been in operation in the state for many years. So let's stop there, Jim. Obviously, Morris Siegel out of Houston, Texas, was, I guess you could say, the biggest promoter in the state, right? Yes, he at that time. And, and remember, we talked about the history of Houston wrestling. Morris Siegel and his brother, what was his brother's name? God, there was, but anyway, Morris Siegel was the main man, but he was the head of Houston wrestling when they hired... Paul Bosch to be an announcer long, long before he became the promoter. Morris Siegel was still in charge until what? He died in 1967, and that's when Paul bought the Houston wrestling office outright from his survivors, Siegel survivors. But Paul had been on television there for over 15 years before that, so he was a widely known name. But the Houston Wrestling Office, also Morris Siegel, they, as the article said, booked talent all over to the various other promoters in Texas, a spot that would later go to the Dallas office when Fritz was able to, you know, to strong arm that. And at this time, there was starting to be a wrestling promotional war, which you're probably about to tell us about, in Dallas because people were trying to run opposition in uh, to that booking office arrangement in Dallas, right? Well, I'll continue on. The next headline here, what happened when he didn't die? <laughs> in 1939, the owner of the Dallas Sportatorium, home of boxing, wrestling, and hillbilly music, persuaded Siegel to come to Dallas and reorganize a promotion that had died a natural death. From 1939 to 1952, the promoter of wrestling in Dallas was the Dallas Wrestling Club, composed of Ed McLemore, one-third, Siegel, Carl Sarpolis, and Frank Burke, who had two-ninths each and two-thirds collectively. 
And by the way, Carl Sarpolis, better known as Doc Sarpolis, who was also hugely influential with uh, Dory Funk Sr. in Amarillo. Sarpolis and Burke were also equal partners with Siegel in the Texas Wrestling Agency. All of them prospered. In February of last year, Siegel suffered a heart attack, which for a time appeared might be fatal. During the period where Siegel battled for his life, an effort was made on the part of Macklemore and Sarpolis to move the Texas Wrestling Agency from Houston to Dallas. Siegel recovered, stubborn fellow, and the booking business stayed here! Exclamation point. During the same period, Macklemore and Sarpolis devised a plan and induced such leading stars as Wild Red Berry, Mr. Moto, Cyclone Anaya, Ray Gunkel, World Heavyweight Champion Luthez, and others into signing contracts bearing their appearance for any other promoter in the United States, permitting television bouts for 10 years. They were to be paid $5 for each time a film in which they appeared was sold to television stations for exhibition. See, that that was what they, obviously, they never could follow through with with following through with that contract, which then put him in breach of it. But the, the concept was, because didn't, somebody else tried to float that at one point. I can't remember. But w- when we sell it to Rochester and you're on the tape, you'll get $5. Or when we sell it to fucking, you know, Inglewood, California or whatever, you'll get $5. But that, imagine that happening in the wrestling business, especially back in those days. So that's why I think this went by the wayside. The contract contained no provision for the accounting to the wrestlers. (laughs) Macklemore testified in district court in Dallas that the TV take was divided between himself and Sarpolis. He denied, of course, knowledge of what Sarpolis did with the rest of the money. A district court ruling denied them the right to enforce the contracts. That's when the war broke out all over. Siegel's version is that Sarpolis said, quote, Morris, I've wronged you, I'm sorry, and begged for forgiveness. With a tolerance that appears to have bordered on the foolish, Siegel eventually did forgive him, for they remained in business. What about Macklemore? He simply declared himself the sole promoter of wrestling in Dallas and struck out on his own. What about the partners? They became interested in and backed Norman Clark of Galveston, who leased Pappy Showland in Dallas, the city where Siegel, Burke, and Sarpolis had owned two-thirds of the business. The wrestlers remembered that television gimmick and refused to wrestle for Macklemore and appeared for Clark. A connection was made to televise Clark's matches. On the opening night, January 6th, the telecast blacked out. (laughs) The equipment was believed to have been tampered with. So let's stop there. This is the level of this promotional war here. They're cutting the wires for the television show. Yeah, well, see, again, this is before, and Ed McLemore, by the way, uh, if you've ever been a world-class wrestling fan, Dallas, seen the programs, Ed McLemore's name was still being used. He stayed involved in Dallas wrestling all the way through the Fritz Von Erich days. I don't know that I ever met him. His name was on it. He had some interest uh, you know uh, in in something there but the point is that he was still around 
almost 30 years later in the Fritz days, with his name being used as local promoter and et cetera, because they didn't say, yeah, you know, promoter Fritz von Erich when Fritz was still a, you know, main event guy. Um, but McLevore, yeah, that's the thing is this was, the territories weren't fully formed yet. And everybody was trying to jockey for their position. Television was a brand new thing. And I honestly, I can see a bunch of old fucking time wrestlers and promoters sitting around in an office going, well, this guy's going to go on TV and some guy in the room going, well, can't we cut the wire? And they did it. But that ain't all they did. You'll get to that. But that's, in yeah, a promotional war in the wrestling business in those days. This is right perfect down that, down that alley. Clark and Pappy Dolson, owner of Pappy Showland, reported telephone threats and requested police protection. Macklemore set up the Southwest. Yeah, and, and you can see people calling on the phone. Yeah, it's a pretty good showland you got there, Pappy. Be a... Horrible thing if anything happened to it. Better not have that wrestling over there. Macklemore set up the Southwest Wrestling Agency to compete with the Texas Wrestling Agency. Similar ones in Amarillo and El Paso aren't involved in the war. Competing promotions began in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. The only wrestler TWA had, who was an important attraction, to go to the Southwest Agency was Dizzy Davis who had formed an agency and tried to compete with Siegel as a rival promoter here in 1949. After his venture failed, Davis again began to wrestle for Siegel, headlining many bouts here. And by the way, Dizzy Davis was a native of Houston, Texas. That's why he had tried to promote in Houston, which, which this article was taken from the paper. Dizzy Davis was childhood friends with Gorgeous George, and George got... Some, who knows, controversy about how much of his gimmick from Dizzy Davis, but that's that was a guy trying to set up and be a promoter in his hometown, probably because he'd either been jacked around or frozen out, and it didn't work. And when he sees an opportunity to back somebody else trying to do the same thing, he does that. As of April 25th, Sarpolis pulled out of the Texas Wrestling Agency and allied himself with a rival group. A year ago... Wrestling in Dallas grossed $236,330.51. Several okay, weeks, that'd be around $2.5 million in today's money. Several weeks after Clark's promotion began, McLemore's crowds began to dwindle. Clark's have increased progressively. On Tuesday night, April 26th, McLemore drew only $440.15 according to figures of the Texas Labor Commission, which are public records. That week, Clark drew $964.30, more than double. The week before, Clark had drawn approximately $1,700. And then finally, here's the end. On the night of April 26th... But, you know, let me, let me jump in one thing. It sounds like both guys were down because they were splitting a pie, and I think the whatever they were doing was starting to harm the relationship between the business and the fans. Because if you think about it, yes, 200 something thousand dollars is not a lot of money into in today's money. But as we said, adjusting for inflation is two and a half million or whatever. But since they were running weekly, that would indicate like a four or $5,000 a week average. 
over the previous year, whereas now we're talking about $400 and $900. So that's another thing. Of Opposition usually didn't ever go into a hot territory. They waited till their business was down, and then they tried to go in and capitalize on weakness. And then a lot of cases, a uh, incumbent promotion facing an outlaw promotion running against them while their business is already down, it would hurt the business a little further because people were confused and they were splitting a smaller pie and then they were going to be saying and doing things, the promotions to each other that would harm the other's business, which would work both ways. And that's why in some cases it would kill a town off if there was opposition for too long, which is why no established promotion ever wanted opposition. Go ahead. On the night of April 28, a fire, apparently of an incendiary nature, destroyed the... Most fires usually are. Destroyed the Sportatorium, owned by W.T. Cox, William Bond Cox, and the Cadiz Corporation, and Lisa McLemore and his partners under sundry arrangements since ni- since 1939 insurance and, and that of course wait a minute that was the world famous sportatorium that was seen of you know the documentaries on world class etc it's torn down now but it was the Cadiz corporation c a d i z is because the sportatorium sat on land at the corner of Cadiz and Industrial in downtown Dallas Texas and that in the 30s, I assume it was probably worth about as much as a ham sandwich, but it became over the years, you know, prime downtown Dallas real estate. But they built that, that was it, the sportatorium for, as they said, boxing, wrestling, and hillbilly music. That's what the ring never was taken out of the sportatorium. They just took the canvas and the fucking ropes off and left it as the stage for the country music shows. And and they were busy. That building was, you know, books, you know, for all of those things from the 30s through the 50s until this incident. Okay. Insurances in force was reported at $52,500. An interesting fact is that one-third of the ground on which the sportatorium was located had been ruled as property of the state under a ruling of the district court and affirmed by the Fifth Civil Court of Appeals. March 27th. The court ruling already had doomed the building. 34 nights later, it burned. (laughs) Macklemore simply moved his business into the Dallas Livestock Arena, seating 6,000 people. Since then, it has been echoed throughout the state that Macklemore's opposition committed the arson. Nasty charge, huh? What would the Houston faction have to gain? Why, nothing that I can see. Clark was winning the battle for the patronage of Dallas fans. Macklemore (laughs) had a place to move his dwindling attractions. This, I'm implied to say about Siegel, his chief fault, from my observations, simply is his tendency to forgive people who have spit in his face. Or is it his fault? In the wrestling business, perhaps it is. And there it is, Jim, the beginning and some of the early moments of the Dallas Wrestling War. Well, that and then uh, the the livestock, it was the Fair Park Pavilion 
in Dallas, right? That they moved to that, the livestock building or whatever. Um, because I have some, uh, Fritz von Erich as Jack Atkinson made his Dallas debut in the sportatorium that year, right around this, this particular point in time. And then they, while they, after the fire, they went to the uh, fair park, I believe, you know, pavilion or whatever the fuck it was while they were rebuilding the sportatorium or repairing the sportatorium. And I never heard that loophole about the property being uh, the building being partly on city property, but there's, there may be an explanation for how that that was cleared up because when we got there in Dallas, you know, you know, the boys were always ready to all the talent that had been there a while tell stories about the sportatorium. And I mean, you could tell that parts of this thing were fucking ancient even then. So I, you know, it was almost 50 years old at that point. Some of it, the fire destroyed pretty much half the building from what I was told. And Bronco Lubitsch told me a bunch of these stories. And that's because I asked about the odd shape of it. The sportatorium probably, I didn't ever have an exact seating chart that I was able to look at, but we estimated from the eyeballing it and from the gates and the ticket prices there was it, it was probably a sellout it was around 4000 people and during that first 6 months of 85 most friday nights were sold out or or close except if it was really rotten weather but the original sportatorium from the 30s apparently seated more like closer to 6000 that the you know uh, fairgrounds building did and if you watch television the old world class tv show the hard camera shot, you will see people in these bleachers going up on the back and people to the right on the bleachers. And it was like a a semicircular half moon or horseshoe shaped like, like thing. And even people on the hard camera side and you would walk down that ramp down through the people from the locker room and the concession area down to the ringside. It was like a bowl type of thing. But on the left hand side just 30 feet from the ring right behind the section of ringside on the left as you're looking in that direction there's a fucking metal like aluminum shed wall just all the way across the sportatorium there was no seats bleacher seats on that side apparently originally there had been that was the side that was most damaged by fire when they rebuilt everything and put it back together Apparently now this makes sense. Instead of trying to rebuild the whole thing and putting it back on part of city property, they just fucking put a wall down and it was a little bit smaller, but maybe that got them off of the, the property conflict. That's really interesting. That might've been because that you still had parking for the sportatorium out that side of the building. But if there'd been a whole nother big goddamn side plus parking, it might overlap, and that was the direction of downtown out that side. I remember because they used to take the heels out that side door to avoid avoid us having to walk up through the crowd and, and have the downhill advantage. That would have been goddamn death. So they'd just run us straight out the door into the fucking parking lot and then right up the side of the building into Ken Mantell's office door. 
And that was the side of downtown. So that may explain that, but that's the kind of shit that went on during promotional wars. Hey, they're going to be on TV. We'll figure out a way to go down there and have somebody cut their fucking feed. Or they want to run that bill. That's a pretty nice building you got there. Well, somebody might set fire to it. Didn't burn the whole thing down, but it damaged it. So what did they say when they reopened it? They started calling it the million dollar sportatorium. Was that because by that point they had spent like a total of a million dollars or whatever, but the brand new renovated sportatorium and they started running and ran another 40 years there. Well, we will pick this up next week on the show and talk about the conclusion of the Dallas wrestling war from a program here. But I love getting programs from during wrestling wars, like some of the stuff from Chicago, just the little shots. If you know what to look for, the little shots at the other promoter. That you know we're being put in there just to piss him off. Yes. <laughs> but Jim, with that, the drive through is closed. Let's get a song. Probably just one song this week. Let's see, there's a lot of songs here. Jim, this one was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Big Effin' Cooper. I don't give a fuck and I can't stand the bucks But I'm watching the wrestling show <laughs> They don't know the whole trip in the wrestling class I wish Arn Anderson would kick their ass Get those ring, you goddamn goof, you know You piss me off You fucking jerk <laughs> Learn how to work Well, here come Kenny with his pecker in his hand He's a school <laughs> He's all now what the hell is happening that a dinosaur mask? A bitch, a chicken baby could kick his ass. Get out the ring, you goddamn goof, you know. You piss me off. You fucking jerk. Learn how to work. Solo. Kamagato. A go-go. Still, this beats the shit out of watching the Nick Gage match. Well, it's Friday night, and I still hate the Bucks, but they're really fucking suck. I can't watch this wrestling show. Where they're throwing overhand right. Come on, you fucking dummy, it's a simulator fight. At least make it look like you're actually trying to win. You piss me off, you fucking jerk. Learn how to work. Now here comes Tony with his pecker in his hand. He's an Adderall man, but he's got his own wrestling show. The bucket is a mess every Wednesday night. Come on, you fucking double get your checkbook right. Bank cornet to save your crappy show. You piss me off, you fucking jerk. Learn how to work. Thank you, fuck you, bye. Oh, well, there it is. Big F and Cooper. Good job. Hey, him and old Dan Tucker, they ought to team up and do a duet. Excellent job, excellent job, and very, uh, uh, what a motor mouth. That was some very cunning linguistics. It's a good job there. We'll see if he sends in any more songs in the future, but with that, the drive-thru is closed. When do we open any of this shit back up? Yeah, listen, we're going to make this a real quick closing. You know where to follow us on Twitter. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, patreon.com slash cornet for the archive. The Law Office of Stephen P. New sponsors the show, 888-692-8084. Of course, don't forget Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com. Why are we closing like this? Because 
I think we're going to be back with you like tomorrow. Yeah. And well, here's the thing. What we're going to get more normal with our schedule, at least not with our personalities, but we're going to try to pick things up a little bit. I am nipping up with the antibiotics and the steroids and steroids have made me hungry. Holy mackerel. I don't even need to cook shit. I just eat it raw. But uh, we're going to come back in like 36 hours or so and 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 try to tackle the experience. I'll feel even better by then. Brian, you're about as good as you're going to be at this point, but I think people have accepted that. And uh, and then we will come back a few days after that. with, And we're going to have a wonderful Christmas season. Just wonderful. Right? That's right. And until next time, for Chip Cornette, I'm the great Brian Lass, and we'll have a happy Hanukkah. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting, I'm big fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them door corner bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornets. And to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pedro, everybody. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.